Quick, what year is this? But did you know that you really have two skins? The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. This is an egg. That's an atomic explosion. And this is you. Over here are the ones who'd rather talk than play. Is there anything wrong in your Taco Bell order? Before it protests DoorDash for us. <laughs> not, not that I know of. I honestly didn't really even know what I ordered. I mean, you're the one who pointed out that DLT stood for Doritos Locos Tacos. Otherwise, oh, I thought that's what I ordered. So, so <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm good. Nacho cheese DLT. And you got a cup of nacho cheese. And it's like, oh, that's the nacho cheese. What's DLT? Who cares? Wait, why do we have this leftover? Weird. No one ordered a Doritos Locos Taco. Wait a minute. Doritos Locos Taco DLT. Anyway, welcome back to Long Story Short. This is a belated podcast about niche history and dope shit and cool people that nobody really ever talks about, or for that which the whole story is not known. I'm Chris, I do the writing and the reading, because I'm allergic to other people, and I'm here with Jake, who's another person. Hello. Uh, Leah is trying to put our fussy, wussy little babaroo down. Uh, she had a lot of naps today, because she just got a bunch of shots. Uh, yesterday, so she's pretty tired. But ever since Leah came home, she's been resisting that nap some fierce. So it's been uh, a little over two and a half hours of uh, being baby tired. Warfare. Baby warfare. <laughs> yeah, she's tired. She's rubbing her eyes. Her eyebrows are red. When when she's sleepy, her eyebrows turn red. The skin, not the hair. That would, be, that would be like super I figured, yeah. Uh, yeah, but she's been ready to nap, but she got major FOMO. Because she, she, she's a fucking baby. She's got the emotional uh, emotional bandwidth of a pencil tip. She's going to be missing out on all this history. Yeah. I mean, I'll fill her in later. You know, I'll wake her, I'll wake her up like in the middle of the night. I'll be like, hey, shh, hey, shh, hey. You want to know how this guy dies? <laughs> Like, listen to my podcast. <laughs> listen to my podcast. Check me out on Spotify. Like and subscribe. This is episode 13 of the podcast and part 7 of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. Finally, Jake, we've come a long way. I had 13 parts. Yeah, we, we've come a very long way leading up to the downfall of this Romanian dictator. Oh, it, no. It, it, this, right now, is the morning where it all breaks. Oh, wait, is this a good or a bad thing? Well, this is good for us, bad for him. Ah, uh-huh, okay. And sort of bad, but largely good for Romania. Uh, Much so needed. This is the morning of December 21st, 1989. And General Secretary of the Romanian Communist Party... Nicolae Ceausescu is about to take to a balcony overlooking Palace Square in Bucharest to address a crowd that he assembled regarding a national emergency that he caused. But little does he know that the crowd has found solidarity against him and has done so practically overnight. So he thinks, hey, I'm getting the gang together, getting all my countrymen, my subservience, gonna have them get here and i'm gonna have them sing my praises four days before christmas sounds like a party oh they don't celebrate christmas 
He oh. outlawed Christmas, and instead they celebrate his birthday. That's yeah, close enough. Uh, unlike the Soviet Union, Romania had never developed much of an elite class. In a sense, Romania achieved truer communism than the parent nation that taught them the ideology in the first place. All of Romania's power laid within the hands of seven people, the married Ceausescus, Nicolae and Elena, and their five closest friends. Even the most esteemed bureaucrats had barely any authority, instead taking orders and ensuring the machine kept running. Everyone beneath the Ceausescus was paid poorly, treated poorly, and shuffled around often enough that they couldn't get a foothold big enough to pose a threat to the system. All in all, the Ceausescus had no friends to protect them. All they had was the machine of repression, and a 40-year-old repertoire of threats, most of which had been rendered moot by the wholesale diminishing of quality of life over the past decade. In order to repay foreign debts that Nikolai took on to build an oil empire that he didn't pour the energy and focus into actually getting made, as well as uh, leveling most of Bucharest, the capital city, just to rebuild it in his grand scheme, that, that took a lot of debt. So in order to repay it, he started exporting all their agricultural produce instead of giving it to his people. And he let them uh, starve, uh, live in the cold, live without electricity or heat. Uh, Things happen, you know, you, when yeah. you gotta pay your debts, you gotta pay your debts. Could you imagine, uh, you've got two television channels, and that's horrible enough as it is, especially since they're all propaganda. But then they limit it to, like, an hour a day, where TVs will be broadcasting. Mm. Okay, I mean, no Netflix, video... so it sounds pretty rough, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before video games. Well, I mean, they have video games, just not in Romania. I mean, you're starving to death, but can't even watch television to find out. Exactly. You know, the ending of the most recent Survivor. Well, it wasn't on. Yeah. But, <laughs> imagine. Okay, know? yeah, imagine. You just, you, you can't even find that out. You know, I didn't watch Survivor, but I watched Endurance. That was the uh, Discovery Kids version. And it was better, in my opinion. I saw one episode of Survivor. I've seen like three seasons of Endurance. So, I mean, come on. Which one's better? Do you think they had the the Nickelodeon uh, when the kids (coughs) would um, do those like athletic challenges? Oh, um, Nick Gass. Yeah, was that on then? Had to be pretty close. I think the first rendition of nick gas was on the air i'm just gonna google it because it might have actually started in like what was the one with like the the silver serpents and the the green monkeys that is the legends of the hidden temple my (laughs) friend i think i think the people would have been happier if they at least could have watched that but if they didn't even have that available then god have mercy on their souls not even anything to entertain enough to distract from your country falling apart piece by piece. Oh, uh, I, I, I was missin, uh, misinformed. I was thinking of uh, the Nickelodeon sports-related network. Oh, yes. But Guts was the... Oh, Guts, yes. That had Michael Malley, who's from Nashua. Ooh. Michael Malley, the good old boy of Nashua. And Mandy Moore, the good old girl who... 
is sort of from here, but she's also from other places because yeah. she moved. She left. She got out. She survived. Guess so. Unlike uh, many of those people in Romania. Too true. Way to uh, bite Br the knife on that one. Bring it back. Yeah, bring yep. it back. Uh, Nickelodeon Guts. Uh, first season was filmed August 1992. <sighs> so they did not Three have Guts. Do you have it? No, we do not. Not yet. <laughs> Truly unlucky. Uh, it was the same economic cutbacks that turned former allies into helmets of scorn, belittling government officials, military officers, and communist party cadres alike to a point of not only distrust, but revulsion, disgust, and loathing. While the Securitate, the secret police, received more and more federal funding, the army itself received so many cutbacks that their soldiers, who had joined in the first place for the above bare minimum quality of life, were now expected to train, mobilize, and fight on the same meager rations that an unemployed peasant family were given. And while the vast majority of Romanian population was starving, Nikolai Ceausescu had fucking gone to Disneyland. And that is not a metaphor. He actually went to Disneyland. Nice. Please, I get one pound of beef to, to split with my family for the whole month. Can I have a little bit? I have six kids I did not want because of your stupid program. I, we're all starving. We have to eat the rats. And we're running out of rats. Yeah, yeah, I would help you, but yeah, I'm kind of busy. I got I to catch a flight in uh, two hours. Got to be in Disneyland. Mm. I'm getting Mickey Mouse's signature. I'm gonna get an invisible ink so I can uh, I can reveal it with lemons. Is this national treasure? Nice. Leah, that's uh, three for four in this building right now of people who adore national treasure. <laughs> Me and Rosie, Rosie's favorite movie. Yeah, because she was so dearly comforted by Nicolas Cage and John Turtletaub's brilliant direction. <laughs> <laughs> Her favorite movie is The Prince of Egypt. She hasn't even seen it. Yeah, she has. She didn't like it, not compared she to did. National Treasure. Oh, wow, look at all that treasure. And they're carrying treasures from the pyramid. Before the treasures are smuggled out of the country. The stolen treasures. Who let Fred say the word treasure? <laughs> Uh, I quote a 50-year-old New York Times article. <clears throat> President Nicolae Ceausescu of Romania established informal diplomatic relations today with Mickey Mouse. The Disneyland band and actors costumed as various Walt Disney characters, including Mickey Mouse, Br'er Bear, Donald Duck, and Pluto, greeted Mr. Ceausescu, his wife Elena, and an entourage of two dozen Romanian and American officials at the gate to the amusement park. The party was escorted to Disneyland City Hall, where Mr. Ceausescu, a broad smile on his customarily sober countenance, shook hands with Mickey Mouse and was presented with the official Disneyland flag. Mrs. Ceausescu received a Mickey Mouse wristwatch. Mr. Ceausescu then took Jungle Cruise, a boat ride during which he was snapped at by animated crocodiles, saw elephants bathing in waterfalls, and was attacked by a spear-carrying African. His Secret Service men, 
staked out in such obvious poofs as the balcony over the Blue Bayou Cafe curiously fit the setting. Sounds like fun. On the morning of December 21st, 1989, Nicolae Ceausescu rose late, dressed leisurely in a gray suit beneath a black peacoat with fur lapels, uh, a cross-hatched wool cowl behind the lapels up to his neck, and a dorky black snow hat high atop of, atop his head, likely of wool. And when I say high atop his head, I'm like, he didn't, like, you know when, like, the stoner kids in high school would wear a beanie? Yeah. And they wouldn't Had, like, pull little it point on, on the top, basically. Yeah, they, they wouldn't pull it down over their ears and have the, the top of the hat be on the top of their head. Yes. They'd, like, pull the band just around the crown of their head so that the beanie was sticking up like a top hat. But it's a beanie. That's a, that's essentially, like, how Nikolai Ceausescu's... I don't think anyone ever taught him how to wear a hat. Because when he was poor, he probably never had a hat. And no one could talk back to him now. Yeah, of course. They can't be like, Buddy, look, I know I work for you, but uh, you're wearing the hat all wrong. It's supposed to cover your ears. Uh, if I wanted to cover my ears, I'd put my hands over my ears. So, you're stupid. And can you just walk over there for a sec and then look that way? And I'll have a guy shooting you in the back of the head? Don't ignore the last part. <laughs> you just can't have that like one guy in the crowd pointed out. You know. He'd be from the palace, like, deck pointing down. Get that guy over there. And everyone in the crowd would just be like, oh, it's not me, it's not me. And yeah. Suddenly this huge, he's just suddenly revealed in this big ocean of empty space. And a, a single silent snipe around. Uh, Ceausescu stepped out the glass double doors, curtained in white, and took the balcony of the Central Committee building, overlooking the Palace Square, whereupon stood a wide brass podium with two sets of four microphones, each bundled together and facing the conducator. Calm and demure, he strolled to the podium and looked out upon his masses, over a hundred thousand citizens of Greater Bucharest, all of whom had been bussed into the Palace Square from their places of work, where party officials had rounded them up like cattle, threatening them with unemployment if they resisted going on this impromptu field trip to see Ceausescu speak. As they were unloaded, out of view, along Victory Avenue, every couple of citizens was handed a long wooden pole, atop which hung a large picture of Ceausescu's face, a high red flag, or one end of a wide, sloganeered banner. There were so many clearly not homemade, but handed out upon arrival signs that if you weren't standing near the front of the crowd, you couldn't see the balcony, just the backs of various signs. This was the party's attempt to convince the many television cameras stationed at all ends of Palace Square that there was an overwhelming turnout in support of the conducator. Look, they, they all brought their own signs. They made them at home. Where'd they get them? They made them at home, obviously. How come they all look the same and they're giant and, like, None of the poor people own that kind of printing equipment. Are you asking questions? Do you want me to take you to the corner and make you face the opposite direction while this guy puts a bullet in the back of your brain? When he first opened his mouth, Nikolai Ceausescu held aloft his hand, flat, almost Romanesque, as he read from the paper on the podium before him, clearly reading this for the first time as he speaks the prepared words in a bored and monotone voice. <clears throat> Dear comrades and friends, citizens of Bucharest, 
capital, capital of socialist Romania. First, let me send my sincere revolutionary wishes to those of you participating in this great demonstration and to all the inhabitants of the city. I wish you success in all your fields of activity. At this, the crowd starts jeering, booing, then chanting in unison while clapping. And Ceausescu is looking around with this dumb look on his face like, uh, alright, well, I, I'm just gonna uh, continue, I guess, so... And he glances down at his paper, resuming. I also wish to thank the initiators and organizers. And as the crowd quiets to listen, he stops looking around and keeps his eyes to the paper. Of this great demonstration in Bucharest. But then, a shrill roar grows in the back of the crowd and flows into the palace square. It's screaming. And it steals Ceausescu's attention as he looks up and to the right trying to figure out what the elongating echo is, while also trying to read his piece of paper. As the screaming grows throughout the crowd, racing to the front and overtaking the masses, this swell of panic rising through the herd of laborers, Ceausescu just tries to fucking talk over it, raising his voice in hopes that whoever all is screaming will just knock it off. Like a disillusioned elementary school teacher who's given up on controlling their token problem child and just talks over the senseless recklessness, not so much for the benefit of the other kids, but simply to get through it so that they can mark the day as done despite the interruption. Uh, listen to this segment uh, of, this, of the actual speech. Manifestări populare din București, considerând aceasta ca o This is a cliffhanger. You can hear as the screaming really picks up nearest to the camera equipment. Ceausescu has become so dumbfounded and befuddled that he just slowly stops reading the paper, letting the words fall out of his mouth until he's empty, and he stares transfixed in a puzzled manner, not a concerned one, to the distant forward right. At the time, the crowd is rushing around the pylons that hold aloft the central camera, uh, the one getting the glory shot of Ceausescu, which shakes the camera as if it alone is experiencing an earthquake. The cables carrying the video feed to the transmitting station are being worked loose by the crowd trampling below, and the live video feed takes on those wavy analog bars, the static distortion, until the feed cuts to a blank red-orange title card whose only verbiage is the phrase, direct transmission. But before the feed cuts away, a guard scurries across the balcony behind Ceausescu and he's shouting loud enough to be heard in passing by the microphones. He's saying, Who is shooting? Someone is shooting! Meanwhile, completely oblivious to everything, Nikolai Ceausescu stares out at the crowd the way a toddler stares at a circus elephant. And he fucking raises his hand in that same flat Romanesque manner, and he pumps it lightly, then waves it side to side, trying to get the crowd's attention like a fucking toddler flagging down a circus elephant. 
Hello. Hello. The crowd is screaming, rushing, running away from something back there, stampeding. And a guard behind him has just shouted, practically in his ears as he passed by, that someone is shooting. And he's just waving his hand, trying to get everyone to quiet down so he can just finish his goddamn speech and get back inside where it's warm. And he can snuggle up in his jammies and watch a couple DCOM original movies. That's what Disney show. I love this one. He probably gets more than two channels. The, oh, for sure. He's got satellite dishes. Uh-huh. He's blasting in that Disney. He's living it up. I love the one where, uh, where, where the kid, his mom is a house, and she's like a dominatrix. Like, this house mom, is his mom house is like trying to fuck this kid. I love this one. He's so good. Then uh, a pudgy man in a blue suit with matching hat and striped tie probably like some kind of chief of the bodyguards or something like that, saunters up behind Ceausescu, calmly says, they are entering the building, then turns around and walks back through the glass double doors. At hearing this, Ceausescu lowers his hand, but remains fixed like a statue, staring dumbfounded off into the distance, as if still kind of hoping that the crowd will shut up and just focus back on him. And then he raises his hand again and waves to the crowd with his stupid old man mouth gaping open as if trying to coax a smile out of a cranky baby. Ah. And he waves his hand back and forth before the feed finally cuts out. Listen here. What you heard there at the end as the video switched to that red-orange title card, that's Elena Ceausescu in, in the very back asking if it's an earthquake, to which Nikolai legitimately asks, What? As in, Duh, I don't feel an earthquake. The station manager then killed the broadcast entirely. However, the van from which the video feeds were funneling in, before being beamed to the station, it was still recording live audio and video onto the magnetic tape reels inside. As the camera feed cut to a second angle of a camera in the back of the palace square uh, being pulled away from the crowd, you can hear further screaming and then Ceausescu's petulant, angered voice shouting, keep calm, keep calm, keep calm, over and over and over again, growing with exasperation, so much so that he raps on the brass podium with a pen, over and over again, uh, into the mic. A tang, 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 tang noise, as if he's preparing his orchestra to begin a performance. Trying, trying to command the crowd's attention. Maybe you could turn the screaming into a song. <laughs> he, he's just lifting his hands towards various groups of the crowd, and the volume and exuberance of their screaming rises and falls with his gestures. Yeah. He's like, I think I just invented the fucking Nintendo Wii. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now his shouting is like that of a parent trying to get their kid's attention from across a busy playground, spacing out his repeated words while increasing the volume. Keep calm. Keep calm. Keep calm. This goes on uninterrupted for 30 seconds. Just repeating that over and over again. And I won't subject you to that audio clip. 
because uh, it's horrible, until his fucking gourd-faced wife, Elena, saunters up to the podium and shouts into the microphone, just as he had her own, Keep calm! As if they're going to listen to you, the wife of the guy who everyone's afraid of. Oh, I think he's handling it, but thanks for coming in and giving your own two cents of exactly what he said. And this is great. I love this part. Because Nikolai pushes her away, and quietly he tells her, Stop it. And then he goes back to saying, Keep calm, keep calm. Like, I'm in charge. I don't need, I don't need for, for, a woman, for a woman tries to help me out of my, my brute strength, and I'm a big, strong man. Then he shouts into the mic, Comrades, sit down and keep calm. And in the background, you can hear Elena nipping at Nikolai's heels, trying to shout into the microphone, Hello! 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 Then the live broadcast resumes, and Ceausescu repeats himself further. Sit down and keep calm. And he wraps the brass podium again with the pen, albeit louder, and Elena is still behind him shouting, Hello! 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 And now Ceausescu is banging on the podium with his open palm. Thud, 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 thud. While banging with both hands. Thum, 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 thum. And he's shouting, now again, like a fed-up teacher, saying, Be quiet! What is the matter with all of you? Summon all the comrades, he shouts to his guards. Then to the crowd, he repeats himself, What is wrong with you? What's the matter? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's my purse. I don't know you. Keep calm. Earlier, when the chief of the bodyguards casually said, They're entering the building. He was referring to the crowd flooding past the barricades and the armed guards, trying to seek shelter indoors from the shooting that was taking place at the other end of the palace square. At this time, the crowd is fleeing the plaza in all directions, running down the side streets and emptying the audience slowly but surely. Ceausescu is still banging on the podium, rapping his pen on the brass, and shouting for them to come to their senses, and attempting to rally them, saying, Return to the square, comrades! Return to the square! When they do not, he turns to his wife Elena and says quietly, This is a provocation. Then he resumes his careless, repetitive, and futile shouting, Hello, sit down, keep calm. Come on. Then, a desperate and confused cry of, Citizens? <laughs> and like, Question mark? Yeah, like, Can they hear I... me? Like, what's, go what's going on? Am I not loud enough? My name is Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Ron Burgundy. Am I like invisible? Can you guys see me? Yeah, I don't think they can see me. If they can see me, they'd listen to me. Is that me? He's like a veteran with dementia standing outside a Memorial Day parade, c completely confused yet powered by motor reflexes. He's staring out at the empty plaza with his gaping gum mouth and droopy glass eyes with, with his hand fucking posed up against his temple in a crooked demoralized salute and the camera feed cuts away from distant skyline to catch this exact and perfectly pitiful shot of a dictator 
losing the absolute last shred of control he had over his country. His cronies are hiding behind the curtains of the glass double doors behind him, and another behind him tries to shout into the microphone, Move back, comrades! But Ceausescu shushes the man and tries waving at the fleeing crowd again, as if the mere swishing of his aloft fingers will call the, the thousand-strong crowd back into the plaza, like dogs running to the kitchen at the sound of a clattering fork. I swear, the only, and I mean the only, tiniest, barely there, minuscule shred of sympathy I have for Ceausescu is in that moment, as he stares befuddled from the balcony, waving his limp hand back and forth, looking like a fucking mongoloid baby version of Benjamin Button, trying to get the attention of his bickering parents, if only to say, Hi, Mommy. I love you, Daddy. He literally has no fucking idea what's going on, or that this is bad in even the slightest way. He is completely ignorant. He's helpless. He's naive and stupid and so very, very vain, so vain that he cannot fathom why everyone is leaving the plaza. So he just stands there, doing all he's ever really done. Wave his hand, grin, and call everybody comrade. That's the inspiration for Dumbledore. <laughs> Where, like, he usually is just like, quiet, and just waves his hand across, and Everyone instantly the hall is just silent. Yeah, I feel like if those books were written, like if for some reason those he was alive and those books were out, and he read them, he'd be like, oh, that's me. Yeah. yeah I'm Dumbledore. And then he'd stand up on the balcony like, wait, is magic not real? <laughs> I'm waving my hands. Dumbledore waves his hands and he says one word. Yeah. I'm saying like 50 words, 100 words. No one listens. No magic. I've been lied to. Find the owner of this book. Find whoever wrote it. I want a beard. Elena steps up beside Nikolai and says to the guards, Quiet. And then to her husband, Speak now. And Ceausescu pauses, then says, with trembling vocal cords and unsteady pace, as if the words coming out of his mouth are being cranked out of an archaic printing press whose decades-old typeset rack is cracked and rambled. I want to stress again that we must demonstrate our power, strength, and unity for the sake of Romania's independence, integrity, and sovereignty. And he's poking the air with his fist at each of these words, two of which are synonyms, and Elena's beside him, wiping her dripping nostrils with her wrinkled finger. This is one of the fundamental problems of our entire nation, Ceausescu resumes. This is a basic question of... Then interrupted as the party official goons on either side of him erupt into applause and drown him out. Even though he hasn't said what it is. <laughs> so he just, while they're clapping for him, he's like, yeah, that's what I want. So he just starts waving to the crowd again. Like, look, people are clapping at me. It's me, they're clapping at you. You could clap too. Hey, everybody. And Elena's clapping towards the crowd as if showing them how to do it. They're urging them to join her rhythm. It's like a rock song in the hair in the hair metal era. I was gonna oh, say it's like going to a concert, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is Kiss. I'm in Kiss. <laughs> Clap alone. Got a thunder. 
and rock and roll. Francesco busts out a fat, fat little like V-shaped Stratocaster, whatever fucking. I think I feel I, honestly, if he could shred, I think the crowd would like been more okay with him as dictator. Yeah, they break out the rock band set and then just oh, roll with yeah. it. They had four of them up there, right? Elena can't, like, she can't hold an instrument and play it, but you set her down in a drum, drum set and you just let her toddler arms go fucking flailing. Somehow she finds that rhythm. Yeah. She bakes it. She, she fucking clangs and bangs. She flashes that shit. Yeah, she Jack trying Smith to get the, the, the clap going. She's just banging the sticks yeah. together in her hand, you know? Yeah. Right in the final moments of being at the top, and they break out into Reptilia by the Strokes. Even though I'm pretty <laughs> sure the Strokes were like, it was probably in junior high. Probably no, it was in 19. No, they were probably they were probably uh probably still having accidents in their pants. I don't know how old they are, but I assume that's about right. I wish to inform you of an important decision, Ceausescu continues, adopted mm, today by the Politburo concerning the standard of living of working people. Those who remained near the front of the crowd lingered and listened, and Ceausescu said, We decided in this morning that with the beginning of the 1st of January to increase during the next year uh, the minimum salary... And the crowd started cheering. Yeah! He's raising the pay! Fuck yeah! And he told them he would increase the annual take-home pay of each laborer from 2,000 lei to 2,200 lei. Woo! 10%! Baby! (laughs) Which was about an increase of $19 a, a year. A year? Yeah. They're seriously poor. Yeah, it's like just a little under two dollars a month extra. Woo! Like gets you maybe like a candy you know, bar the nowadays. We decided, you know, in your best interest. You know, I think you earned it. Here's a Reese's peanut butter cup. Yeah. Thank you, Chachasco. Think- we'll accept it without getting upset. I feel like if I got a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, I'd be happier than getting two straight dollars, to be honest. <laughs> well, that, that's, what, uh, that's what corporations do nowadays. Yeah. They do this exact same thing. You get pizza parties. Like, you guys have all been working really hard. Oh my god, this is it. Yes, they're going to give us a raise so we're not like fucking... We can pay our fucking bills and live. We're going to give you all... Oh my god, here it comes. A pizza party this Friday. We're going to have to clock out during it, but the pizza will be free. Yes? Cheese pizza, one slice for everyone, and again, you will have to clock out during the party, but it is mandatory. We remember. Can I just take the pizza back to my desk. No, it's mandatory. We're all going to socialize and pretend that we're a family. We're a family. You have to make sacrifices for your family. If I keep going on this tangent, I'm going to get very upset, and we will not finish this episode. So we, distract me, please. We, we remembered how much you love pizza parties in middle school, so therefore, 
We're doing it at your job. Some of the remaining crowd cheered. Because an increase is an increase. Yeah. While the majority, the vast majority, uh, especially those toward the back, groaned. People we are don't... just unhappy no matter what. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> God, I give these people everything they want. They asked for a raise, I gave them a raise. And they're still like, hey, maybe if you worked harder, you'd make more money. Why do they expect me to just keep throwing them handouts? Someday they work hard enough, they can be the dictator of Romania too. No. What? Yeah. I can't believe it. No. You gotta have uh, you gotta have the right connections. You gotta have the right opportunities. You gotta have luck. Hmm. You just gotta be there in the right. Like Maybe. Khrushchev I guess... didn't follow Stalin because he worked hard or like was merited for the position he did it because he you know made friends with the right people and uh made sure other people were not trusting other people who would have likely taken that he basically just networked his, himself into power and that's how it always is looking at you ronald reagan donald trump other horrible presidents is the room getting darker or am i just blacking out no, I don't think the room's getting darker. <laughs> uh, we will ensure, Chachaska continued, in this way, good conditions appropriate to work and life for all citizens of our country. These measures demonstrate the strength and the growth of the economy. In actuality, there had been no growth to the economy. It's just that, a few weeks prior, Chachaska stopped giving away the majority of their exports to pay off foreign debts. So now, there's just some surplus. The economy has not grown. You're just not giving away everything that you make. We do everything to ensure the continuous rise of our living standard. He lied proudly. Again, the front rows of the crowd cheered. They have to. They're the ones he's looking at. Yeah. That's why Billy Joel reserves the first front rows of his concerts for the most ardent fans. He just plucks them out of the lines and go. Hey, you've been waiting a while. You clearly love my songs. I want you nearest to me so that when I look at your faces, I get the energy, and then I perform better. Everyone who's in the way, way back, I don't really care. I'm playing for the front seat. It's like a rap battle. You know, you get all your friends in the back, hype yes, you up. Yeah. That's how it's going for him. So while the front rows of the crowd cheered, the rest of the crowd jeered, like a TV guide column. Cheers and jeers. Very quickly, the jeers turned into chants, sparked by power plant workers near the rear, and across the plaza, they echoed the name Timosora, Timosora, in reference to Romania's westernmost city, where the first uprisings had bloomed a week prior, originally in response to the forced eviction of a timid pastor named Laszlo Kokis. As the cries of Timosora, Timosora resounded through the palace square, Ceausescu raised his hand and said, uh, Speaking about the events of Timosora, I talked about it last night. It appears increasingly clear that there is a joint action from circles that want to destroy the integrity and sovereignty of Romania to stop the construction of socialism. Again, to put our people under foreign domination. Therefore, we must defend with all the forces of integrity and independence of 
Romania. And this part's funny, because all the loyalist people in the front rows start cheering loudly and waving their flags and banners. But the broadcast switches to another camera, and it's only like six or seven rows of people in the front that are still holding the signs, and everyone who's still in the plaza behind them have laid their banners down. If they're not still moving towards the exits, they're just standing there. Deadpan. Still trying to force the comparison of this gathering to his anti-invasion of Czechoslovakia speech uh, that marked the high water of his reign 21 years ago, he said, I think there are many among you who remember the great event from 1968 eh, to defend the independence of Romania, and now we must act in complete unity, strongly, against anyone who is trying to shut down our strength. Eh? Give it to me, crowd. Yeah, flash me them peepers. Give me a clap clap. Can I get some claps in the chat, please? Gonna get some motherfucking chat, chat claps. What's that one thing? The 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 face with was the guy in Twitch? Oh, the pogs. Pogs. Gotta get a couple pogs. Pog champs. Uh, he implies again that the uprisings are all a feint and incursion orchestrated by alien agents and fascist agitators, saying they are acting in the service of various imperialist circles and intelligence services uh, to divide again Romania, to enslave our people. You know what our ancestors have done and said? Better to die in battle, in full glory, than once again be slaves upon our ancient ground, and we must fight to live free and independent. Now, tell me who this run-on topic-free sentence sounds like. It is necessary more than ever to act in the spirit of our workers' democracy to debate with full responsibility all matters concerning the development of our society, having always in mind that anything we do in Romania has to ensure the welfare of the people, that we build the socialism uh, with the people and for the people we should, in any circumstances, to ensure the integrity and independence of Romania. Who's that remind you of? This is multiple choice? No. It's no. open-ended. But there's only one right answer. Unless you can think of an equally acceptable answer. I feel like for someone who also goes around run-on sentences, I think Donald Trump would be the biggest example of that one. Uh, editor, can I get a couple ding-dings? Thank you. I'm the editor, but I, I had to put it in after. I think I read his, uh, his uncle's nuclear run-on sentence quite a few times. What's that? Uh, apparently, Donald Trump's uncle was like a nuclear scientist. But when you read him talking about... I don't know what the context of that speech was or how that topic came up. But when I listened to the, the one you were talking about with the Romanian dictator speaking, there's a lot of like buzzwords sort of deal. Which, I yeah. mean, you see quite you a lot nowadays. Buzzwords. And people aren't listening, so you can do a run sentence and no one cares as long as you hit the buzzwords. And their brain is like only looking for little nuggets that they recognize so that they can go, yes, yes, yes. And it has nothing to do with what you're saying as long as you're saying certain things. Because like we had what, like fascist in there, yeah. socialist. And, I mean, those are two very key words in kind of the grand scheme of things. Especially even nowadays, I mean, you hear quite a lot. 
Look, having nuclear, my uncle was a great professor and scientist and engineer, Dr. John Trump at MIT. Good genes, very good genes. Okay, very smart. The Wharton School of Finance, very good, very smart. You know, if you're a conservative Republican, if I were a liberal, if, like, okay, if I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. But when you're a conservative Republican, they try, oh, they do, do they do a number? That's why I always start off, went to Wharton, was a good student, went there, went there, did this, built a fortune. You know, I have to give my like credentials all the time because we're a little disadvantaged. But you look at the nuclear deal, the thing that really bothers me, it would have been so easy and it's not as important as these lives are. Nuclear is so powerful. My uncle explained that to me many, many years ago. The power, and that was 35 years ago. He would explain the power of what's going to happen, and he was right. Who would have thought? But when you look at what's going on with the four prisoners, now it used to be three, now it's four. But when it was three, and even now, I would have said it's all in the messenger. Fellas, and it is fellas, because, you know, they don't, they haven't figured that the women are smarter right now than the men, so, you know, it's gonna take them about another 150 years. But the Persians, are great negotiators. The Iranians are great negotiators. So they they just killed. They just killed us. This is horrible. That was very difficult to read. Yes. Cuz it's like every 3 or 4 words he's going in a different direction and my brain's like, "No, nah, that doesn't make sense. You're reading it wrong." And I'm like, "No, I'm reading it right, dude." Yeah. Just keep just don't try and think about it. Just read the words. My brain's like, the words have to make sense. The words don't need to make sense. I'm looking at a word jumble. It's a crossword puzzle, and you've just, you're just reading it left to right. I'm a politician. But also, you, you just because you, your parents pay for you to go to the Wharton School of Finance doesn't mean you got in on merit. Also, it doesn't mean you graduated with honors or that you learned anything. If you learned anything, you wouldn't be such a shitty-ass businessman. That's another one with buzzwords. You hear nuclear quite a bit. Nuclear. And you kind of just Socialism. ignore like the, the key context there of just like this random like word exchange he's having with difficulties staying in like the same sentence. And you think that great things are going on, but by the end of that sentence you realize nothing's been spoken of value. Fellas, very smart. Great negotiators. It's true. What about your uncle? <laughs> MIT. Orton. It's true. Very smart. So I'm glad that that run-on sentence reminded you of Trump, because it did to me. And uh, I hope it did for everyone else, because, you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortably accurate how you can just take a Ceausescu speech and just change the proper nouns, and it sounds like a Trump speech, and vice versa. They're, just, they're both incomprehensible... Uh, narcissistic dotards eagerly flexing the muscles they don't have and pretending to seem like they're men of value because they're deep down afraid of and contemptuous about the fact that they don't have any value. So they're going to force people to say, you're valuable. And if it means giving them guns or putting training guns on them, then they'll do what's necessary. Ceausescu, he's rambling. He's throwing out a bunch of words and phrases with no context or sense, linking them together. Throwing in your favorite words willy-nilly and then ending the ramble with your catchphrase, to ensure the integrity and the independence of Romania. 
I'm just saying, history has a way of reiterating itself. I mean, they both have a deficiency of managerial skills, they both habitually take on great debts despite a slim understanding of economics, they both employ their friends instead of qualified people, they both love being heaped upon with admiration and applause, they both love to surround themselves with yes-men and extravagant, sultanic displays of wealth, they both believe that anyone who doesn't buy their narcissistic superiority gimmick is an abject enemy, they both have small hands, and they both have faces that look like a plastic bag got accidentally cooked in a microwave for 40 seconds. Pretty accurate. Thank you. While Ceausescu kept going on, rambling the same sentence over and over again in different ways, decrying the supposed enemies of the state that wanted to destroy Romania and make everyone's lives worse, the broadcast resumed as normal, completely ignoring the chaos that had ruptured the crowd barely a few minutes before. Those who had fled the palace square convened elsewhere, such as the nearby plazas of Union, Rossetti, Romanian, and Kogonicinu. In the latter, a young man climbed atop the statue of Mihai Vitezul, aka Michael the Brave, the first prince to rule concurrently over the three regions of modern-day Romania, thereby forever symbolizing the unity of Romania's peoples. Atop the statue, the young climber waved the nation's tricolor flag, albeit with the communist coat of arms cut out of the center, leaving a nice big hole. Other displaced demonstrators were inspired by the act, and since they had been bussed in from work, given the day off, and then sca sent scattering about Bucharest while their so-called leader accosted them without concern for why they were fleeing the scene in the first place, they snatched up further tricolor flags from along the streets and cut out the communist coat of arms to emulate the young climber's homebrew banner of revolution. See, by this point, word was spreading now of what caused the chaos. Some had thought there were fireworks, others suggested bombs, but it was actually a security agent, a secret security agent, at a bus unloading station adjacent to the palace square, who had opened fire on a laborer who turned his back on the procession to the plaza. Upon arriving, the man realized he was missing a day's pay in order to be a stooge for the conducator's ego, and a pawn in a pro-party demonstration staged at the benefit of Romania's viewers at home and abroad. He waved it off, and the security agent ordered him back. But he continued walking, and so the security agent just fired. Shot him. Good way to build morale. Yeah. Other agents began firing too, in reflex, but stopped briefly thereafter upon realizing that the, the sole threat had already been neutralized. It, it, it's a herd instinct that uh, uh, pigs have. Pigs meaning um, men of a certain workforce who are employed for their brutish behavior and uh, ability to um, not see the humanity in others and don't have the intellect to pursue other uh, career options aka uh, just cops in general. The beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> What's that from? I don't know. Uh, I've just heard that quote very often. It sounds like something from Portal. Portal, no, but no, I'm just going to Google it. Uh, the bust-in workers scattered, followed by those nearest, 
Further up the procession and the screaming and the fleeing rippled like an ocean wave into the plaza, stirring the crowd into a frenzy that disrupted the live broadcast, befuddled Ceausescu, and prompted half of the palace square's audience to scurry away. Afterwards, as Ceausescu steered the loyalists back into his prestige, confused masses across the country gathered in the streets of their towns and cities, perplexed as much by the disrupted broadcast as by Ceausescu's careless, demanding, authoritarian response to his panicking people. Particularly, particularly curious about Ceausescu's indifference by his returning to his speech immediately thereafter, the buzz became that of the state trying to mask further unrest as if they were hiding an apparent active revolution by pretending it wasn't happening. All while, accounting for the shooting, the security were simultaneously suppressing it with violence. They've been repressed for over 40 years. Well, y if you include the fascist era, over 60. So to believe that everything's being covered up by the media and there's violence behind the scenes as everyone just tries to act like, oh, nothing just happened, let's be normal. Well, it's not surprising that literally everyone across the country was like, oh, shit's going down and they don't want us to, they don't want us to get in on it. They want to hide it. Fuckers, let's get in on it right now. Grab your pitchforks. How many years are in a generation? Uh, former, formerly, um, they were, they were considered at 25. Uh, but you could argue nowadays that because of the speed of uh, social and techn technological evolution that it's closer to 20. So almost like two to three generations worth of people in yeah. Romania are just oppressed. Like the oldest people here, uh, not the oldest, but uh, the, the oldest generation were those who ushered in uh, the communist regime or were around when that was ushered in. So like the old party members like Ceausescu himself and uh, his uh, his five friends at the top and his closest cronies, they were all like the people who led the small faction of communists into the vacuum of the uh, fascist Hitler-adjacent empire as that crumbled and Stalin's forces came in. They fought to rise up and bring their own government, and they succeeded, and now they're in charge. So they've been here since the beginning, and they're the ones who want to see this all the way through to their own well-timed and well-earned natural deaths, rather than see it crumble because of their uh, uh, impotence and uh, inability to use brains or manage things appropriately without just getting angry and killing people who disagree with you. So Ceausescu's like, can y'all just, like, remain okay with my dictatorship until I kick the bucket? Like, what's the big deal? You've been doing this for, like, 40 years now. Yeah. You just let what's, me keep being dictator until I want to die. What's five to ten more years, you know? Yeah, what's the big deal? Come on. It's only a couple of lemons. Bucharest quickly spiraled into insurrection, with angered and incensed citizens surrounding the Central Committee building on all sides, scattered from the crowd and now joined by others from their homes and shops, particularly joined by those youths who were home from university for their winter, not Christmas, remember? Christmas is that Christmas month, from their winter break 
And what did we say in the first episode of this series all the way back? You wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. But you know who knows? The people who've been listening to this podcast this whole time. A.K.A. our one fan, Bethany. Do you remember that line about frustrated, college-educated, purpose-deprived youths? They seek purpose from whatever meaningful opportunity first arrives. That's why we have so many people turning to Nazism after the uh, housing bubble. It's the first thing that goes, Hey, that's how I'm feeling. Oh, and you're saying I can do something about it right now? Tell me more. I'll, I'll adopt your, your whole ethos if it makes me feel like I have a chance and I have a purpose rather than just I am a floating speck of dust in a, in a moat of a blue fucking sphere floating in the great abyss of space and I will die insignificant and stupid. Is that why you were plugging the big short clips earlier just for this moment? No, but I think it applies. Yeah? I mean, you said 2008 housing crash. That's what drove it. Yeah, and then, uh... And we watched the clips. The, uh... We had some slight recession dips, like 2013. We had one, uh... We had one a little while ago, um... At the start of COVID, and then we had a... We're coming up on a huge dip that's going to replicate... Hard to say whether it'll be more or less, but it's gonna reflect the housing bubble, and it's not gonna be good. Potentially. And then we'll have more frustrated, college-educated, purpose-deprived youths such as myself. Everyone in Romania knew something peculiar was on the horizon, rumbling beneath their feet, sizzling in the air. Ceausescu ended his rambling speech about ten minutes after steering it back on course, and his bodyguards rushed him inside through those glass double doors. Those of the crowd who had made their way into the central committee building during the chaos, they'd been ejected, and now those doors were being locked and barred and barricaded. The scattered crowds were returning from their various squares and descending upon the central committee building en masse, jeering and chanting, shouting phrases like, Ceausescu Siniesti, criminal discornicesti, a.k.a. Ceausescu, who are you? A criminal from Scornicesti. That's where he was born. And Muarte, criminal luli criminal With a lot of U's and L's. A.k.a. death to the criminal. And, uh, Noi centum poporul, josu dictaturul. A.k.a. we are the people, down with the dictator. I don't speak Romanian. Neither do I, so I'll just take what you tell me and believe cool. it. Cool, I'll just say what it is. Google gobblegee. Yeah. Google gobblegee will go. That means, that um, Google Translate. Sure, we'll get something back. <clears throat> Google gobblegee will go. That criminal from Scornicesti slogan had a particular burn about it, because that's the town where Ceausescu was born in. The town he lived in until the age of 11, when he left for Bucharest to become a shoemaker's apprentice. That's right, Ceausescu was a shoemaker. Is he qualified to leave the country? But what says nowadays that you can or can't? He didn't learn anything since he was a shoemaker. Doesn't say you need to be college educated. <laughs> right? 
True. You don't need to be college educated to be a politician. Many people will attest to that. Yeah. Two decades prior to the revolution, Ceausescu had wanted to build a model town like the ones he saw in China and North Korea when he made uh, visits to those states in uh, 1971. The model towns that uh, they had, those nations had built to convince gullible foreign visitors that all was well, and it was sounds like that he could see being duplicated across Romania once the debts to the West were all paid off and the new oil refineries started making back ten times their investment, like he promised in the very beginning. The first model town that Ceausescu uh, decided should be sculpted out of. Scornicesti, because what better place than, Scor than the Conducator's own birthplace, right? where I'm from, clearly the best town. Obviously, I was born there. Yeah. So even though Scornicesti had less of a population than Blackfoot, Idaho, the potato capital of the world, and around a nothing to sneeze at for the middle of nowhere, 6,000 people, Ceausescu committed a mass investment of Scornicesti, raising the old market and the surrounding village homes, which he wanted to replicate in the first place, but hey, let's just get rid of them. And he replaced them all with new concrete monoliths and Blokori apartment buildings, basically those big Soviet concrete rows of cubes that are just so lovely. Was it like that Call of Duty 4 map? Yeah. Block, yeah. I think it was called. The only traditional village home left standing was the one Ceausescu was born and raised in, which was uplifted to a status of local attraction, which, uh, unfortunately, it still is today. Not so much for the adulation of it, but because... Hey, remember uh, that horrible period? Uh, the guy who led it, he was born there. So that's cool. Let's, keep, let's just keep his house up. You know, he leveled the r entire rest of the town, but let's just keep his house up. Well, that's why it's a local attraction. Yeah, it's a local I don't attraction. think it's drawing, you know, millions of people to come check it out, but if you happen to be driving through... It's kind of like driving through the Midwest, you know, you just happen to see a billboard, you're like, eh, I should go check that out, why not? I got time. That's why I went to the Vacuum Museum. Oh my god, I'm wearing the shirt! The Vacuum Museum Ooh, shirt, vacuum nice. Museum it's closed now, because of COVID, they just yeah. completely cut, but hey, one of the best museums I've been maybe, to. Maybe that, his house is closed due to COVID as well. You no, know, that's a good idea. I did, I did uh, write this two years ago, so... For all I know. Yeah, it's possible. Scornicesti was redubbed a city, though the population stayed the same, 6,000, and Ceausescu then dedicated more of the nation's wealth toward building a fucking soccer stadium there, with a capacity for over 18,000 spectators, which is more than three times the entire population of Scornicesti. Who all did he think was going to come here? Every peasant within a thousand miles? This made Scornicesti's stadium larger than those of all three of Bucharest's major teams. The Progresul Banker Barbers. Don't know why they're called the Banker Barbers. It's literally banker hyphen barber. Like, who out here is, like, writing up mortgage paperwork and then cutting people's hair at the same time? They weren't, they weren't making a lot of money, so they probably had to have two jobs. That's a good point. So maybe that's just the combo they had. That's what they did. The bankers, when they got off work, bank cut at day, hair. cut at night. Yep. Hey, bank at day, cut at night. Uh, the Dynamo Red Dogs. Ooh, ooh. 
and the SB Stilesti, who, ironically, share their nickname with the former paramilitary group of the late Mihai Stilescu's eclectic fascist party, Stilesti, meaning star. The stars? Yeah. Another fun fact, the SB Stilesti were, by the end of Ceausescu's reign, managed by his son, Valentin. Valentin, he had, uh, Ceausescu had three children. Uh, two of them were nerds, which Ceausescu hated because he hated nerds. Uh, but his third son was a stupid-as-shit little bitch devil who smoked coke, blew money, and fucked whores and died of alcoholism. But Sounds like the life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He hung out with um, Saddam Hussein's son. They were best friends. Uh, it's not a joke. They were best friends. All right. It doesn't sound like the life anymore. Yeah. Um, Looks like he made some mistakes, but... He was a mistake. He's a human mistake. Uh, but Valentin, he was a nuclear physicist. He liked math and science. He was a nerd. And so, kind of cool that even though his life didn't really go according to plan, especially since his dad tried to, you know, keep him from doing what he wanted, because... Stop being a nerd. Nerd. At least he got to manage a soccer team. Nice. Once Scornicesti had its stadium... Ceausescu commanded Romania's Division I Soccer Federation to integrate its local team, the Old County Yellow and Greens, as they were called. They didn't even get, like, a real name. Because yellow and Greens? Poor, yeah. Uh, uniforms in Yellow and Green will be the Old County Yellow and Greens. It's like the Red Sox, you know? Ah, uh, true. Sad. True. Uh, uh, they were in Division Four, a.k.a. Local League. And the F Soccer Federation complied because they have no other fucking choice. So they upgraded Old County for nearly a decade. Oh, yeah, you can... Well, you guys are like Div 3 College? What is it? Div 3 is the lowest, right? I believe in college, yeah. Yeah, Div 3 College, yeah, you could just, I guess, be an NFL team. I guess it's fine. We'll go easy on you, I guess, so we don't die. Their best finish was in 1982, when they came in fourth out of 18 teams. Because it went easy on them. Not bad, though. Yeah. Could definitely be a lot worse. None of this meant that the town gauge gained any prestige, however. The population may have doubled, sure, but as one player recalled, When I first came to Scornicesti, I, I sat for two hours at the intersection before the entrance to the town, not one car passed. There were only just two cars in the whole place. And the mud. Oh, all that mud. He hated it. The stadium was adjacent to an old slaughterhouse, and the only other buildings nearby uh, were a hole-in-the-wall pub and the blockery where the players lived. As one player recalled, that shitty pub was the mecca of the village, and even if you did not drink, where else could you go? So we sat around the table a lot, talking. Let's be clear, nobody was playing here for the love of the shirt. We were all mercenaries. Whoever came here did it for the money. And not many spectators came, either. An addition expanded the stadium to accommodate for a total 25,000 seats. Not necessarily. But... The yellow and greens were lucky to even break more than a thousand visitors at any time. There was one game in 1982 that had only a hundred spectators in the stands, but since this game was televised, 
and Ceausescu intended to watch it live from his palace in Bucharest? The broadcast team smushed all the hundred spectators into one small section, then kept a single camera trained on that isolated block whenever they wanted to cut away to the fans in order to appease Ceausescu by making it seem as if the Scornicesti Stadium was packed. Packed so much that people were fucking shoulder to shoulder and screaming over each other. So they, they would bus everyone to the palace for a speech, but they wouldn't bus enough people to help fill the stadium. I guess, well, it's, it was, they could, they would only do as much work as they needed to. So if you could fool him from a distance and you just needed to show this tiny little, tiny little section of a stadium, but didn't actually have to fill the whole thing, they're not going to waste the resources or the time or energy on film. Makes thing. sense. But I just, I wish that they didn't just leave the camera unattended and just, like, maybe a kid goes up and he doesn't know what he's touching and he just hits and he just, like, the, bumps the, the camera zoom, over. And it just snaps out to the full widest view and, like, the tiny group of people just disappears in the vastness of the empty state. That would be fucking hilarious. I can just <laughs> imagine Chachescu sitting in front of his TV and it takes him, like, an easy two seconds to register what just happened. Like, hey, whoa, there's no one there. What? I need them on the phone. I gotta kill some people. Seven years later, after the fall of communism, the old county yellow and greens were appropriately downgraded back to Division Four, and the rapid degradation of the hastily and poorly built concrete stadium meant that Half of its 25,000 seats were roped off, classified as condemned, unfit for public use. No one has been maintaining the stadium for years, a contemporary player told a reporter in 2018. The access road requires many diversions to avoid potholes. The parking area is a mud bath. The paint has disappeared from the walls. The entrance is dark as the lights no longer work. Pieces of the walls and ceilings lie strewn over the floors. The rooms upstairs, originally reserved for players, are now occupied by the homeless, and the entrance to the pitch is through a room that was originally the bar. Like a drinking bar? Yeah. Ooh. Be some fun soccer times. <laughs> Maybe in the past. You get drunk before the game and then play it out. Maybe that's why they came in fourth. That thing's tapped out. That thing's dry. <laughs> That was just the only through way with which to access the green. Just imagine, like, the like the patio deck doors are just, like, permanently wedged open with, like, those weird cigarette butt things full of sand. Yeah. And, like, the dust lines just show, hey, these have been here forever. Oh, and fun fact, since the yellow and greens could only get into Division One on the merit of goal differential, and since they were all... Homegrown peasant pansies? That meant fudging the numbers. So, in their last game of 1979, against the Slatina City Electrodes, who were a far better team, the referees awarded dozens of penalty kicks to Old County, as well as invalidated all of Slatina's goals, so that the Yellow and Greens ultimately won 18-0. And the rigging of Old County's games continued into Division One. Hence, you know, winning, getting all the way to fourth somehow. 
because uh, the Federation never wanted Ceausescu's hometown team to do poorly for fear of retribution. Here's one account from an old from an old county defender about a game versus Bucharest medal. We were playing at home and the score was 0-0 until the 18th minute when the visitors scored a perfectly legitimate goal. We put the ball on the center spot, but our president Dimitri Dragomir, who watched the match from a stool on the edge of the pitch, called me over and told me, go see the referee and tell him there was an offside before the kickoff. The referee was waiting for me to approach him. Then he goes to see his lineman, who tells him that there was an offside, so the goal is cancelled. In protest, the medal players turned their backs on the ball. Our teammate is left alone with the ball. Goal. Easy. They put the ball back on the middle of the field, kick off, turn their backs again, and we score another. When he saw what was happening, the referee immediately whistled for the end of the match, and the 2-0 score stood despite only 82 minutes having elapsed. Seems fair. Yeah. Sometimes you you know you gotta throw a few games to bail out your fellow your fellow countrymen. Could you imagine your dream was to play soccer? And now you're playing soccer. Except a single guy wants his team to win all the time. I suck ass. So you just have to go out there and be like, oh no. Oh, there they go, they scored. <sighs> Can I go home and take a sponge bath? I mean, it sounds bad, but like, when I played Little League, and we played against some of like the worst teams in my league, you know, we played a little bit more, what I would call like, for fun. Where like, I remember I pitched a game. I never pitched at all in baseball. But I pitched against this one team for two innings. And I was terrible. But I was having a blast. But I, I feel like you can almost do the same thing. Like, you know you have to throw the game. So you don't go out there and try your hardest. And you just do dumb stuff. But, I mean, they probably take it more seriously. Because of the level they play at. So it's probably more disappointing when you lose. Because of, you know, bad calls and such. But. I feel your story is a good one. And I like that. And I think they would have felt that way if everyone was in Division 4 and they were just like yeah let's just play for fun you know let them win but we can still but could you imagine MLB versus well that's that what I mean they're taking team. a lot more serious and yeah. again they know they should win no matter what as the crowds return to the palace square now waving their hole punch to try color flags while chanting their anti-regime slogans Ceausescu ordered the military to support the Bucharest police in suppressing the opposition. The Condicator's advisors had tried persuading him to speak with representatives of the mobilized commoners, since these viral uprisings seemed to prove that Romania couldn't survive the perestroika era without a few liberal concessions of its own. But Ceausescu wouldn't hear it. He believed his own bullshit, that these were not protesters but agitators, and, like the rats they were, they had to be exterminated in order to keep the house clean. The masses of protest, none of whom were armed or organized, were soon met by 10,000 Romanian soldiers, just about 2% of the half-million-strong Romanian army, as well as the capital's anti special anti-terrorist squad, the USLA, and the 
Brigada Antiterrorista, a special tactical operations unit of the Romanian intelligence service akin to the special operations group of the CIA, the tactical paramilitary unit deployed on high threat clandestine missions or covert missions for which the US government desires not to be directly associated, which is what Michael Weston was doing before he got burned. My name is Michael Weston. I used to be a spy until we got a burn notice on you. You're blacklisted. In the USA Network's magnum opus burn notice, which aired from June 28th, 2007 to September 12th, 2013. And if Leah were here, she'd say, why do you keep bringing up burn notice? To which I would say, hey, it's a little campy every once in a while, but it's a wild ride and it's satisfying every time. I'm surprised it lasts for six seasons. Is that six seasons worth of burn notice? Yes. I used to watch that quite a bit. I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah, I loved it. I watched it all the way through the first time, and then I rewatched it mm, two years ago, all the way through, and it held up. It's good. Jeffrey Donovan, Bruce Campbell, plenty, plenty of lesser. Oh, it's so good, Jake. We gotta watch it again. It's for sure. Like I said, it's been a long time since I watched it. I just didn't realize it was that long. Like I definitely know I've seen the majority of those episodes. Because I definitely remember seeing the finale, but... It's satisfying. Some shows that... Well, I just remember, I I know I've watched it. I don't remember, like, what happened. I just know, like, I remember the feeling of, like, oh, here's the last episode. Like, I better make the time for it. No, because it was on USA, I believe. Yeah. So, back when I used to actually watch more cable, so... Yeah, yeah. I, I was a latchkey kid, so I raised myself on TV. And then my parents were like, why do you want to write for TV? You be an architect like your brother. And I was like, T- television raised me. I love television. Television and I understand each other. Video killed the radio star and TV killed the architect dreams. My child could have been an Olympic gymnast. Mom, I played on the monkey bars. <laughs> Stop making me try to do... T- I don't want to wear a leotard. Ceausescu also dispatched plainclothes security officers who infiltrated crowds and sparked violence. Uh, exactly like we were seeing in cities across America. Um, I wrote here uh, these past few weeks, but that was two years ago, so two years ago and a few weeks ago, as American police forces uh, gassed, gunned down, uh, beaten, and arrested uh, thousands of peaceful protesters in response to public outcry against police brutality because hey when when in rome right yeah they're protesting police brutality let's show them police brutality let's dress up like them and start planting bricks and going hey we've had all these bricks let's just start throwing them right guys let's just pick up the bricks and throw them come on everyone take a brick it's just this weird perfectly neat pile of bricks on this sidewalk for no good reason I'm clearly not a cop. Can you guys come pick up these bricks and throw them at police? And I can take out my gun. And I can put you on the ground. And I can threaten to shoot you. And then I'll take you to jail. Free bricks. The summer of 2020 was a probably a really interesting time. To be honest. 
I mean, at least for, like, our generation, like, I mean, what the past was, was, like, you know, you heard about it through the news, and it's, like, whatever they reported is, like, you know, what it is. Yeah, like the 1967 Democratic National Convention. Like, the yippies fighting with the police in the streets of Chicago. It's like, oh, that happened over there the other day? That's wild. But... But now you can, like, I go on Twitch.tv, and you can see what's going on in someone's live stream. People are Facebook streaming it. People are YouTube streaming it. And you can see, you know, people are right there. I mean, I remember, I I was watching this one guy who was just, like, filming. He got arrested in the middle of it. Damn. And they cut the video. And I'm just like... You watched that happen? Yeah. That's wild. And that's only something we could see, like, now. Well, you wouldn't have seen that 20 years ago. Yeah, I, uh, got most of my, uh, daily protest updates from, like, Twitter and Reddit and whatnot, because everything, like, with keywords and whatnot, they just lump together these huge streams of, like, look what happened in this city and this city and this city and this city, all basically at the same time, and it's weird, all happening the exact same way. Wow, this is seriously happening all over the country. And, like, the major media and the government in particular are just trying to make it super quiet. Like, oh, it's not, it's not happening. Yeah. All's good. All's good. Everyone, shh, don't, you know, it's not a, it's not a revolution. It's just, you know, a little bit of upset people over there and a little bit of upset people over there. And, unfortunately, it worked. They put all the protesters, put a lot of them in jail, scared the rest off smothered it and then there were people like me who i really wanted to partake but for one we thought we were we were pregnant originally for a little while and i didn't want to muck like future things up then that didn't work out but then we were pregnant again and that one actually took and it's like i'm actually starting to get something put together for once i can't like go out and miss a couple of rent payments by being in prison for like fighting a cop in the streets yeah i think the risk was just way too much for most people they, i mean i know i felt the same way it's what i i had friends who went to the the ones in boston and uh the stories they told were quite horrifying in my opinion of like getting boxed in and getting forced out of areas by the police to the point where i was like yeah that'd make me excessively uncomfortable because they're kind of forcing you into ways to do things illegally so that way they can arrest you yeah yeah it's whether it's fortunate or unfortunate you know it's kind of both but america is unlike romania at these times in the respect that america's learned from the examples of others and its own past like the industrial the labor upsets of like 1880 late 1880s up until like the new deal era when like the one good thing franklin delano roosevelt did was usher in like government support systems to produce jobs and ensure that people didn't starve or not have homes crazy uh but uh, the capitalist systems, especially after Reagan, have learned you just barely give the population enough 
that they have something to lose. And if they have just the bare minimum, they will not risk it by resisting. If for some reason, like when COVID happened and people weren't able to go to work, but the bills were, oh, you still got to pay your bills. And look at that. The prices are all going up because the landlords need to make money too. Well, the landlords don't work. Why do we have to pay them more all of a sudden? But the government was like, hey, you know, let's just give them a little stipend so that they don't tear down our facade of ugly corruption and uh, lack of compassion and humanity for the people who actually keep this country running. The work is on the ground. Every month that passes since I was in high school, I become a little more socialist. And eventually I will be that guy who goes on college campuses on the weekends and just scream at people <laughs> like, you're young, you can do something. I missed my chance, let me teach you. Let me teach you how you are fucked. How, how you work for machines, big corporate machines that use you and say you're worth this much, but I need you to make far more value than I say you're worth so that I can take all of that value and just give you a little sliver of it and say thank you and then I keep it and I get rich and you do the work for me because I just keep you alive how long must my angry tirades go on before I realize I need to stop talking Leah's here, she goes, okay, 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 I know you're upset. <laughs> Get back to the story. Ceausescu. Ceausescu. Aiding the Romanian army were their two APCs, their armored personnel carriers, which were ABI builds based on Soviet blueprints with quarter-inch thick armor plating and either a, a 7.92 millimeter PK machine gun or a 12.7 millimeter DSHK heavy machine gun housed in the top-mounted turret. Again, they had two in the whole country. <laughs> they sold off the others. Uh, uh, fortunately for the rioters, part of Ceausescu's plan for repaying his billion dollars debt to the Western banks included the selling off of superfluous military equipment. So in 1986, uh, three years ago, uh, Romania sold five of its APCs to Liberia, and the following year, another 10 to Algeria. Uh, this left only two APCs, both of which would ultimately be firebombed in the streets of Bucharest. <laughs> oh, no, that Bomber. was easy. Yeah, oh, man, that was quick. Hey, they no longer have tanks. <laughs> We're good. Albeit not until uh, the APCs had, unfortunately, they'd already inflicted dozens of casualties. For anyone planning a visit to Bucharest, uh, you may glimpse the charred husks of Ceausescu's two APCs, at the city's National Military Museum. Hmm. So that's cool. As soon as it ended, they were like, yeah, we should keep those. Maybe we could do something with them. And then they had them in a warehouse, and they're like, what if we just like put them somewhere not here? And people can, I don't know, fucking pay to look at them. 
Who gives a shit? Put him in the museum. It belongs in a museum! I don't know why I made Indiana Jones an old fucking man. It belongs in a museum! Dark of the cover. Have a little boy with sticky fingers just go up to him, push the lid, and then blind himself with God's light. <laughs> his face fucking melts. And so does his lollipop. How many licks does it take to get to the center of this little boy's face? <laughs> the world may never know. God's like, ah. Uh, now when you think, uh, two APCs, that's, like, not a big deal, right? They're armored, sure, and have a mounted machine gun, but otherwise, they, they literally just transport troops, and there's only two of them. But Ceausescu thought them superfluous, remember? Two APCs weren't going to crush any rebellion, no. Uh, and certainly, they couldn't defend the country's borders. What Ceausescu really poured his faith in, uh, was the tanks actual big old tanks. The Romanian armored division was comprised largely of T-54s and T-55s, the hand-me-down panzer killers that the Soviet Union first produced at the end of World War II. As technology rapidly advanced after the war's end, and with lessons learned from the many armored conflicts of the Eastern Front, which are amazing. I love studying those. The Kursk Oblast. Salient. The Volga River, Silo Heights, Tank Battles of the Eastern Front. I was just about to say, that should be a video game. I'm pretty sure it's a video game. I bet it's on Steam right now, I bet it's 10% off. Maybe. Some kind of Tanks of the Eastern Front. Age of Armor or whatever. Uh, based they got World of Tanks. That's what it is. Uh... Based on the uh, armored conflicts of the Eastern Front, the Soviets quickly conceived a universal tank, a main battle tank that had the firepower of a super heavy tank, the armor plating of a heavy tank, and the mobility of a light tank, all on a chassis the size and weight of a medium tank, meaning more power, more speed, more resilience, and more maneuverability, all without sacrificing one for another. The T-54, T-55, series immediately went into mass production, on to become the most produced tank of all time. And they are still being used to this day. In lesser countries, but hey, hand me down, hand me down, hand me down. And now suddenly a country that never could have had a tank has a bunch of tanks. The uh, 80s, 90s uh, coups and military regimes of Africa spring to mind. The Soviet war engine manufactured their first 100,000 of, T of T-54s and T-55 between 1945 and 1958, intending to equip all of the Warsaw Pact nations in anticipation of the Cold War going hot. Good. The best offense is the best defense, right? Correct. So, the youngest of these tanks, by 1989, were 31 years old. Could you imagine driving a 31-year-old car, let alone a 36-ton car that was I'm almost old. 30 and I feel like it's harder to move already so can't imagine a Same. 31 year old tank my knees creak and I have to bend forward to stand up you know wake up in the morning I gotta stretch just to make sure my legs still work properly you know yeah I don't like sit up and stand out of bed now I just roll off and catch myself on my feet sometimes I fall to my knee but it's a lot easier than like having to sit up turn and stand 
and just fall out of bed and land on my feet and then spring upright. That's sad now that I say it out. <laughs> I've been doing it for so long, it's normal. But like actually saying it is like, oh wow, that's how I get out of bed? Jesus, I look like to keep the beasts alive upgrades were made available throughout the years until 1983 and and they came from all sorts of manufacturers even american ones yeah is it any surprise that the american american military industrial complex was feeding both heads of the hydra during the cold war this shit's straight out of sherlock holmes game of shadows which is one of my favorite movies First one, fine. Game of Shadows, brilliant. I gotta give, especially the cinematography, I gotta give Robert Downey Jr. as much props as I would Dwight D. Eisenhower for being all Nostradamus on that shit. Fucking military industrial complex is making upgrade parts for Soviet armaments and selling them while they're supposed to be taking billions and billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money every year to make defense projects for America to fight the Soviets. That they could get more money. How is that okay or allowed even? I'll tell you. Lobbyists. And corruption. Correct. The defense industry is huge for a reason. Do you want me to go on another 10-minute tangent? I'd, I'd like to stick to the topic. Okay. One of these upgrade packages for the T-54, T-55 series was produced by Cadillac Gage Textron, based then in Providence, Rhode Island, though now headquartered in Louisiana. And still to this day, Textron makes millions of dollars a year on government contracts from America as well as abroad. The Cadillac Gage Textron upgrade package, known as Jaguar, Retrofitted the T-54, T-55 turret with flat armor plates installed at angles to deflect inbound shells and missiles. Replaced uh, the Soviet 100mm gun with an American M68 105mm rifled machine gun. Fitted with a thermal sleeve and a new firing system called the Stingray. Which vastly improved target identification and engagement by way of an optic system with day and night thermal imaging, laser rangefinding, and digital display. Basically, the end result was like taking an old jalopy to one of those TLC network restoration shows where Mike and the gang transform rust buckets into the new Mercedes Maybach GLS. By 1989, the Romanian army had 945 Soviet T-34 tanks, 790 Soviet T-54s and T-55s, 415 Romanian TR-77s, 535 Romanian TR-85s and 30 Soviet T-72s. As for the Romanian people, their armored division consisted of a few loaned aluminum coupes, each with square edges and donuts for all four tires. So, it's a little unbalanced. Sounds like it. The tanks rolled into Bucharest along the major boulevards, first in long columns, then splintering off to block access roads, cordoning off the area around the palace square. The Brigada Antiterrorista and the USLA operatives hustled down side streets to occupy rooftops and choke points, while the army spanned the roadway, roadways 
filling the gaps between tanks, and the Securitate officers, in their plain clothes, moved into the crowd. Then, from above, the firing began. Government snipers, cherry-picking protesters from the eaves and windows of the tall buildings in and around the palace square. Again, they're not doing the live telecast anymore. So that's uh, it sounds only, like it. Yeah, it's like, and we're done. Cut the feed. Uh, make sure the wires are all, you know, disconnected. No more cables. And, uh, okay, y'all good to just start shooting people in the streets now. The crowd crushed inward. The tanks rolled forward. The soldiers marched in their rows. Picture it. The white smoke of discharged ammunition floating up around the neoclassical masonry and the sleek Beaux-Arts roofs and old Russian tanks storming down the streets, gobbling up cars underfoot, while these soldiers, operatives, and secret policemen shoot, stab, and bludgeon, and beat their countrymen, all laborers who had, merely two hours earlier, ran anxiously from a trumped-up pro-regime demonstration. They, weren't even, they didn't even want to be here. They weren't at work. They were forced to be here. They have committed no crime, and yet they're being mowed down by armored vehicles and rifle fire alike. There's one particular incident that stands out to me of an APC blitzing through the valet circuit at the footprint of the Intercontinental Hotel, two blocks from the Palace Square, and the APC just steamrolls a crowd of people as they run toward the hotel. For the refuge of its lobby, uh, it just crushes a good half dozen, scattering the others like bowling pins. The Intercontinental the Intercontinental Hotel, a towering citadel of luxury lodging, was a prime position for its upper-level customers to have a 360-degree view of the mayhem below, around the National Theater, the University, the hospital, the egresses of the Palace Square, and the surrounding neighborhood. Some of these elevated spectators were able to record the repression on videotape, while Ceausescu ordered the same to be done by helicopter, originally to help coordinate the assault, but also to capture video evidence for what would eventually have been a wave of reprisals. Kangaroo courts and saying, uh, these people who survived, they need to get the same treatment. The fire brigades even joined in on the suppression, blasting the crowd with their water jets, while the police chased down escapees. One enclave of protesters seeking shelter in a restaurant called Dunaria built a barricade against the doors and windows and occupied it overnight resisting hours and hours of battering and pushing by the Romanian army. Around three in the morning, however, the soldiers received an order to hose the restaurant with gunfire, and in the dark of the Yorli morn, the majority of the protesters inside were slaughtered. I just, yeah, that's one way of handling the situation. It definitely is one of the ways. To Not a good it. way, but... I just rewatched uh, Book of Eli. Reminds me of, like when they're besieging that little white house. Yes. And uh, they just open up the back of that truck, push out this hand-cranked, uh, massive, heavy machine gun, and just tear the facade of the building to splinters just by shifting side to side and going wall to wall, just hosing it down with. As many of Bucharest's citizens returned home to gather whatever guns they had hidden from the state or whatever weapons they could scrounge in from too, 
Some of the crowd were able to seize military armaments during various scuffles in the assault. One soldier, killed by a stolen rifle, was Florica Muriryu, who was attached to a roadblock unit. Muriryu was a rugby player born in the same Moldavian city as the former prime minister and historian Nikolai Yorga. Uh, Muriryu relocated to Gensia, an impoverished borough of southwest Bucharest, to play for SB Rugby Club, whom he led to win 10 championships during the 14 years that he played. His team, SB, was comprised of peasant-born folk, much like their Boros soccer affiliate, the aforementioned Stilesti, both of which, uh, both of these SB teams were arch-rivals with their Dynamo counterparts, and the Dynamo Rugby Club was comprised of policemen and civil servants. So, their meetings on the pitch were literally emblematic of class warfare, and in a prescient turn of events, at least in the years that Florica Muriu played, the Dynamo only won the championship once, and only twice in the span of Nikolai's, Nikolai Ceausescu's reign. Uh, interesting to note that the tra tradition of SB and Dynamo recruiting streetballers and local cops, respectively, continues to this day, emblematic of the never-ending struggle of class warfare. Florica Murray was a staunch anti-statist like his brethren, but he belonged to the army reserves during the rugby off-season in order to make extra money. It was during this time, December 1989, that he was called into action to repress his countrymen in the heart of Bucharest, and it was there too that he died a needless, cruel, and undeserved death. To be fair, he did put down his morals and pick up a gun in order to get a paycheck. But on the other hand, that's what he had to do to keep from starving. So... I don't know if you... Know. Well, it's pretty neutral, unfortunately. Yeah, based on the situation like, he was like, in. He got what was coming. But I wish that he just wasn't in that situation. Because that sucks. Again, had Ceausescu taken the advice of his advisors, who were there to advise him... All of this could have just been avoided. All it would have meant was a few liberal concessions and some slight perestroika at the minimum. Just, hey, a little bit more openness. What's the big deal? But Ceausescu had too much of an ego, and he would rather die than give up an ounce of power. And soon enough, he'd get what he asked for. Now I'd like to read an account by Romanian journalist Eugen Tomiuk a former teacher who witnessed the genesis of the Romanian Revolution firsthand. Twenty years later, on the anniversary of the uprising, he wrote, I looked in the distance, and I saw a huge mass, thousands of people marching on the boulevard toward us, coming from the city's eastern industrial platform, many with flags. The sun was blinding me, and I wondered for a moment whether this was again one of those staged anti-hooligan demos, like the previous day's Bucharest rally. But as they drew near, I noticed there were no red flags, and the tricolor had a hole in the middle. Then the guy leading the column, a mountain of a man with thick beard, rose his head and our eyes met. The column headed for the local party headquarters at the edge of the town's park. The building was surrounded by trucks full of army conscripts, AK-47s at the ready. My wife and I found ourselves pressed against the elevated railing in front of the building. One soldier lowered his weapon and pointed it threateningly 
at my pregnant wife's belly. Then, suddenly, short af shortly after noon, the tide turned, and I heard shouts from people coming toward us. At first, we could not understand what they were saying, but it soon became clear when they began jumping with joy. Ceausescu has fled! We are free! Slowly, as if incredulous of what they were hearing, more and more people began hugging one another. We looked at each other, then at the army conscript still pointing his gun at my wife. It's over, man, I yelled at him. It's over when my commanding officer says it's over, he replied coldly. Look behind you, I urged him, as he suspiciously turned his head, only to see the army major throw his cap high in the air. Ceausescu had fled indeed. It was over. Communism had fallen. My story, as told to my daughter years later, should have ended there, but unfortunately it did not. From 1209 Friday, December 22nd, until the evening of Christmas Day, when the Ceausescu's execution was partially broadcast on state television, hundreds more people died unnecessarily in many cities and towns across Romania in a bloody masquerade presented by those who had taken over in Bucharest as a fight against terrorists, presumed loyal to Ceausescu. Whether they were terrorists indeed, we never found out, but many civilians were called to arms by the new authorities, and local army barracks too easily gave away guns to people as young as 14, sometimes only based on a simple ID. On December 23rd, in Sfantu Roche, I saw how, from the army headquarters downtown, brand new sniper rifles were being handed over to civilians to protect the revolution. On December 24th, the same day, we took the train to see my mother in Brasov, where there had been reports of fighting. Mother was alright, thank God, but only yards from my home on the street I grew up at, as a child, a huge pool of blood had not yet dried. Several armed men were hanging around, one of whom I knew. Hey, he told me with pride, we killed a terrorist, a foreign one, in an Italian registered car, he added, reeking of alcohol. He tried to overrun our checkpoint. We shot at the car, he stopped, got out, and tried to want to run away. But we got him in the back. I turned away and walked downtown where bullet pockmarks were everywhere. One guy I knew came to me to say, Hi. There was no more post-revolutionary joy in his eyes. Carmen was killed yesterday. In the very first burst of gunfire last night, near the Matarum building, she was there with her boyfriend and others to celebrate. Carmen B. Anna, former middle school and university colleague. The following day, I bought the paper and checked the list of dead and the places they had fallen. I paused over a foreign name. Rencati Francesco, 42, Italian national, shot by mistake while driving with a transport of humanitarian aid. It was Christmas Day. Finally, we called it Christmas again. We made it. And we did an, it. <laughs> we did it. And now for an account of bad timing and over-lubrication. On the night of December 21st, Dmitry Mazalu, this guy who looks like Modoc, who was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs until he nearly snitched on Ceausescu's human rights abuses to the United Nations, and was thus placed under house arrest. Snitches he, get stitches. He was moved to prison with his wife and son by a unit of security. 
Technically, this was for its protection, as the city was now swollen with vengeance on both sides. Protesters and soldiers were at war, and, despite being outgunned, the protesters laid their lives down for the cause. Nearly 1,500 freedom fighters would die this night, and in the tremors thereafter. The following morning, Dmitry Mazalo and his family were released into the arms of Jan Alescu, leader of a burgeoning political faction soon to be known as the National Salvation Front. Mazalu addressed the crowd as he recalled, Deeply moved, with the face swelled by the blows received, I told the people from where I came and underlined the anti-communist character of the Romanian Revolution. I reminded them that we were under the most oppressive totalitarian boot for 45 years, and that the country was never communist and would never be. We have proposed that our homeland be simply called Romania, without any socialist or communist adjectives, and that the flag of the country be freed from the communist insignia. Encouraged by the approval of more than 200,000 people present in the huge market, we read the revolution's program platforms, structured in the ten points, and proposed that the new power body be the Civic Forum, set up as a democratic power of Romanian citizens, and in closing we begged the Lord's help, saying the words, so to help us God. Forty-five years were bidden not only in the palace square, but in all the markets and other public places in Romania. Couldn't say God. It was in the morning of December 22nd that Nikolai Ceausescu made his second big mistake. He and Elena had already intended to flee Bucharest, having decided so the afternoon prior, but instead of leaving under cover of darkness that night, Nikolai and Elena wanted one last night in their big cushy bed because they thought hey it'll be a while until they got to sleep in it again so being the idiots that they were the Ceausescu's waited until the morning of the next day to flee the city that was under active uh, uprising from the populace hey thing is the minister of defense army general Vasily Milia decided to kill himself that same night as he wasn't as hopeful as the Ceausescu's were about the way that this revolution would pan out. See, Vasily Milia had hesitated when Ceausescu ordered him to fire upon the protesters. Milia was a real human kind of person. Like, he had organs, and not just like little lizard demons inside of him. He was like an actual human. So when the first protest erupted in Timisoara a week earlier, Milia sent the wave of soldiers in with blank ammunition, hoping that if any fingers got trigger-happy, the only outcome would be protesters running home, because fearing for your life is better than losing your life. And you know, I think that's pretty awesome. I agree. However, this pissed off Ceausescu, because he didn't want protesters running home, he wanted protesters dead in the gutter. Frankly, it's thanks to Vasily Milia that the suppression of Timisoara didn't turn out to be an utter massacre. Word of Ceausescu's displeasure with Milia after those events traveled very quickly throughout the militant ranks, and by the time Bucharest had tanks in its streets, Ceausescu was ripshit with Milia for, again, not pulling the trigger, pulling it even fast enough. Eventually, Ceausescu sidestepped Milia and ordered the massacre himself. He told the guys below Milia, hey, do this. Do this now. And for this, he charged Milia with treason and had him booted from his position as Minister of Defense. Vasily Milia took this loss 
really hard. He had devoted the past 45 years to the military, and as general of the army, he wanted to be the best general he could be. But Ceausescu wouldn't allow him to proceed with honor or to act in the defense of the country, but rather it was expected to be hostile and aggressive against his own people. And when he refused, he had everything he worked for stripped away from him. It was ass-backwards, and it was as much depressing as it was infuriating. On top of that, he could account for at least 162 protesters killed thus far as a result of his orders, and that devastated him. At, approxim at approximately 9.30 in the morning, on December 22nd, Vasily Milia unholstered his pistol and shot himself in the heart. Now, unfortunately, he missed his heart, instead severing his left coronary artery, also known as the Widowmaker, as it supplies blood to, in most people, the vast majority of people, the large chambers of the heart. In rare cases, your heart is backwards. <laughs> but in this case, his heart was normal. Uh, so rather than immediately going unconscious from shock and bleeding out on the carpet, his heart continued to bl pump blood through his body, only the blood was now gushing into his chest and pouring out the front and back holes, while his heart continued to pump air into his veins. Ugh, the burning! Oh, God. Oh, the burning! Ah! He crawled away from his fallen gun with what must have felt like a, a precise and inexplicable drowning going on inside his chest, choking and gasping while also gushing hot, slick blood inside and out. Eventually, Milia passed out from blood loss and died. Now you're probably wondering loudly, why didn't he shoot himself in the head like a normal person? Well, I have a theory for that. See, Milia was Soviet-trained, and the Soviets believed that if you've committed a great dishonor in command of military forces, you killed yourself by shooting yourself in the head. It was standard practice in World War II and continued to be the option throughout the Cold War. But Milia wasn't a brute like most Soviets. Remember, he was a humanist. Not soft, mind you, just compassionate. Here's another thing. Suicides to the dome are messy and can go all sorts of wrong, included but not limited to shooting at the back of your throat for aiming too low, like in Fight Club, uh, and shooting off the front of your face for aiming too high, like when Mississippi town beauty Katie Stubblefield ate a shotgun after her boyfriend broke up with her. Her boyfriend broke up with her, so she took her dad's shotgun, popped it in her mouth, pressed it up against her chest and pulled the trigger. Completely missed her brain and just blew the whole fucking front of her face off. Sounds like a bad time. Yeah. And sometimes a small bullet will ricochet around inside the skull, but doesn't actually hit anything important. Ugh, just kind of gives you brain damage, uh, but doesn't kill you. And other times, s such a bullet can even be deflected off of the skull, because skulls are designed to be hard and curved, like armor for the brain, because that's what they are. So maybe Milia simply thought he wouldn't risk living through a suicide by, by going for the other necessary organ, and the one that isn't covered in ankylosaurus plates. But there's another fact I want to throw out, and here's where my theory comes in. See, while men are more likely to shoot themselves in the head when committing suicide by small arms fire, women are more likely to shoot themselves in the heart. Yada yada has to do with men being logic driven and women being emotional driven, yada yada something something psychobabble. For some reason that's the explanation and 
psychologists and whatnot can figure out a better reason to say other than uh, sexism, but it stands. Also note that Vasily Melia never married and had enlisted in the military at his earliest opportunity. My theory is that Vasily Melia was gay, that he joined the military to not so much be around men, but to devote himself to a career so as to ignore the relationship aspect of his life, since he could never truly have the life that he wanted under communist Romania, and in being a repressed minority himself, he understood and respected his countrymen more than the average general, which could explain why, while his peers would have likely obeyed Ceausescu without question, Milia always found a way to be peaceful and compassionate when violence was laid out on the table before him. Also, I don't mean this as in a woman-in-a-man's-body kind of way, but for being sensitive as he was, perhaps, he was more inclined, subconsciously, to shoot himself in the heart rather than in the head. However, you could also just surmise that he didn't think the bullet would pass through his skull, because he did kind of look like Gibby from iCarly, uh, if Gibby was a representative of the, of the Lollipop Guild. And I mean that in both the sense that he had a big head, and that he was dressed sharp, and he sculpted the fuck out of his hair. His hair. Like, when I go out, I try and get my hair down to a T, because it's like one of the only good things about like what's going on. Here is, I have like a good thing of hair, so I'll like finick with that and get it fucking tidy and shit. I can never get it as good as, the, the, there are a couple pictures and Vesely's got like, it's like it's a helmet, but it's also soft. It's amazing. Google it. Google it right now, whoever's listening. Bethany. <laughs> Anyway, the scene of Vasily Emilia's corpse was pretty suspicious. His gun on one side of the room, and a thick trail of blood leading from there to the heaped corpse of a dead general who was recently canned for treason against the Condicator's direct orders. Hmm. The scene looked like he was assassinated. And those who first found him, they didn't have the time to assess, like, the left coronary artery being fucking blown out. So they just believed... He was assassinated, holy shit. While investigators quickly ruled out it was definitely a botched suicide, the rumor of Milia having been assassinated was already spreading among the rank-and-file soldiers, and they were already pretty fucking pissed that their general, who loved and respected them, actually treated like humans and tried to give them the best that he could, was canned for trying to do the right thing, and apparently that wasn't enough, if word was to be believed, because then Ceausescu had him killed. Obviously, look at the scene. As a result of this great injustice, the vast majority of the army, remember, half a million strong, they all immediately turned their backs on Ceausescu and joined the revolution. Their commanding officers, too, did little to stop them, either believing the rumors as well, or just deeming Nikolai Ceausescu a lost cause. The end of Ceausescu's reign was now inevitable, if not de facto already the case. Meaning, Nikolai Ceausescu was under the impression that his suppression of the protesters had worked. He went to bed thinking it worked. He didn't even bother to look out the window. He just woke up and presumed that it worked. He's fucking arrogant. I ordered them to do this. Obviously, it came out perfectly. I'm going to go watch Disney Channel. And so he called a meeting of his advisors and the political executive committee. 
In informing his wife, however, around seven in the morning, she came to him with more pressing news, that great numbers of industrial workers were entering the capital from the factory zones on the outskirts, coming by truck transport, as well as marching in columns, meaning the people were invading the capital. And they're in the middle of the capital. There's a correlation here. Let me take a second to figure it out. Oh. They pushed through the barricades at University Square and into the Palace Square with ease. And by 9.30, there was a half mile of protesters in every direction of the Intercontinental Hotel. I don't know how many people there were exactly, and I don't intend to calculate, but I'll suffice to say there were at least hundreds of thousands. Soldiers and policemen dispatched to the scene to expel the crowd, instead joined the protest. Finally, they saw the light. By 10 o'clock, the propaganda machine was broadcasting over all radio frequencies that Romania was now under martial law, and any groups larger than five persons was illegal. Nevertheless, the protesters stayed put. It's a lot of people being illegal. I don't know how the fuck Ceausescu was so dense and narcissistic that he thought everyone was just going to go, oh, after all the tanks and the army and the beatings and the shootings, I didn't realize we were supposed to disperse. Oh, martial law, it's illegal to be in this many... Guys, we're in a big group war now. We're not supposed to be. Ah, gosh, golly, gee, if only our fearless leader had banned groups larger than five persons earlier, I would have realized I shouldn't be standing around out here. Silly me. Time to go home now. Guys, let's turn this. Let's turn this around. Let's all go home and make some sugar cookies or some shit. Let's go eat dirt. That's all we got. We just got a curfew. We got to you know, respect, so... Guys, it, yeah, it's almost 11 a.m. Curfew's about to begin. What are we doing? Ceausescu then had the gall to go back out onto the balcony wherefrom he had spoke his wooden words 24 hours prior, and, and he, he came out in an attempt to assuage the crowd and cool their tempers. And yeah, that, that didn't work. Everyone booed him and screamed and shouted. Surprisingly, nobody fucking shot him. That surprises me. Some of them had guns. Why did they just shoot him? A little bit of humanity. I guess. Jajesku went inside, and he ordered his helicopter fleet, uh, the same that the day before had orchestrated the tanks from their hovering stations above, and he ordered them to take to the skies and dump thousands of hastily printed leaflets, instructing his denizens to not fall victim to the diversion attempts of foreign influencers, and to instead go home and enjoy a Christmas feast with their families. Yeah, she got so bad. The guy who hated Christmas brought up Christmas. And the Grinch. <clears throat> I'm the Grinch. Check your stockings. I, uh, I give you all lemons. Fortunately, uh, the wind carried the majority of these leaflets far away from the crowd. Just dumped them on rooftops and shit. <laughs> and the persuasion tactic, which wouldn't have worked anyway, failed to make any amount of impact whatsoever. Actually, I stand corrected. Uh, the college-educated kids who occupied the downwind areas of the crowd caught some of the leaflets and interpreted them as Ceausescu's version of the Marie Antoinette statement, Let them eat cake. Go enjoy a Christmas feast with your families. 
fuck you, we don't have food. Enjoy a Christmas feast with our families. I'm even more upset. Which, it only infuriated the protesters further, as the vast majority of Romanians couldn't even afford basic food like bread, eggs, meat, or cooking oil. And go enjoy a feast with your families. Screw you, fuck dick. He doesn't even know we're starving. How many times do we have to fucking tell him we literally don't have food? Ceausescu made a second attempt at addressing the crowd, but that only riled the protesters even further, and they began pressing into the Central Committee building, some of whom even made it within spitting distance of Ceausescu himself. Kind of like the... the, the I wrote this well before the insurrection, January 6th. Yeah, January 6th. This, is fucking, this fucking happened. Protesters running down hallways not knowing that the people they want to lynch are on the opposite, opposite side of that door and the opposite side of that door and just upstairs up this staircase and around the corner and uh, thank you Eugene Goodman and other uh, other guards who um, who, who did a who, 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 who made, did, made a badge look good for for once uh, Ceausescu's bodyguards kept the crowd back and ushered Ceausescu into safety, but the securitate on the ground floor had all but given up after hearing about the death of Vasily Emilia. In Milia's stead, Ceausescu appointed Victor Stanky Stank, Stank, Stankulescu as the new Minister of Defense. Stankulescu first said, uh, no, <laughs> because he didn't want to inherit this god-awful mess, but he quickly changed his mind when he realized what all kind of power he was about to receive. Oh, wait, I get to tell the tanks what to do? Yo. Sign me up. Sign me up, dude. Before we go any further, let's briefly talk about Victor Stanky Stankulescu. First off, he looked like Gilligan from Gilligan's Island. If Gilligan had a dirty little secret, and he knew that you knew, but he also knew that you couldn't tell anyone without shit coming your way, too. You know, but I know you can't tell anyone. If you if you Google me, he looks like a Waluigi just farted, and he's waiting for it to hit your nose. Wow. Yeah, damn right. That's 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 my eggs. You smell my eggs, bitch. Tiny ass elevator. And Stickleesku was kind of the guy to have the very card up his sleeve with just about everyone. Furthermore, Stanky Stankalescu was the guy who directly ordered the army to fire upon protesters at Timisoara, going against General Milia's orders. For this, he would later be tried by the Supreme Court 20 years after the fact and convicted of aggravated manslaughter and sentenced to 15 years imprisonment, ultimately being released nine years early in 2014. And why was he released so early? Well, to make a long story short, <laughs> who cares? The conviction was largely symbolic as nobody actually cared about a snake-eyed old man and what he did with his final years. And he did die barely two years later at the age of 88. Once he assumed control of the Ministry of, the ministry of Defense, Victor Stanky Stankalescu ordered... I named him Stanky, by the way. He's not actually... I figured, but it was a good <laughs> nickname, so I just let it keep going. I give people I don't like the worst stupidest, dumbest nicknames. Uh, Stanky Stankalescu ordered the Romanian army back to their barracks, and he did so without Ceausescu's knowledge. Then he told Ceausescu that the army was 
abandoning their post. Oh, hey, look. You see all the army is leaving. Oh, no, Ceausescu. I think they've betrayed you and I. Oh, this is bad. And he gestured to the fleeing troops and the tanks outside. And Ceausescu began to panic. And as the protesters began to overtake the Central Committee building, their shouting and stampeding resonating throughout the halls and growing louder, Sankalescu recommended to Ceausescu that, Oh, you gotta take to the skies, and you gotta get out of Bucharest right now, before you get lynched. And Ceausescu agreed. The Stanky. first time, he may have done something right. Yep, Stanky is making a power play, and he's exploiting Ceausescu's fear of losing power so that he can get Ceausescu to get the fuck out and then he can go hey Romanian army come back here I'm in charge let's do this shit military coup boom boom let's see if that happens do you think it happens my tone kind of says no but I'm kind of trying to make you think yes I'm unsure I like that you're unsure Stanky Stankalescu later explained why he betrayed his commander-in-chief, saying, Uh, I had the prospect of two execution squads, Chechescu's and the revolutionary one. And he made the snap decision to spare himself rather than attempt to save the Condicator, whose death was inevitable regardless. Thus, as the people swarmed the Central Committee building, Nikolai and Elena Chechescu took the elevator to the roof, where their personal helicopter was soon to arrive. As the elevator made its way up, protesters cut the power to the Central Committee building, trapping the elevator between floors, mere feet away from landing flush with the roof. Bodyguards, still loyal to the Condicator, rushed up the stairs and went to the elevator doors, which they pried open with a fire axe. They then pulled Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu up and ushered them across the rooftop to the waiting helicopter, while they themselves, the bodyguards, returned to the roof access door and held it shut barricading it with their bodies as the crowd crushed against it on the other side. This part feels like a Call of Duty mission. Yes. Uh, and why would... Oh, why would they sacrifice themselves? They've been indoctrinated so deeply that they're like, We'll save you. You get out of here and lead this nation back. I'll, you know, stand here and repress the protesters until they kick open the door and then savagely tear us to pieces. Whatever. Well... I mean, like, somewhat, it's kind of like their last moments, right? So they kind of feel like they're probably doing the right thing. I feel like heroes. But, yeah. In reality, they're not. Uh, the protesters below had overcome the balcony and were tearing apart the brass podium that Ceausescu had pounded his fists upon not 24 hours earlier. When Stanky Stankalescu first advised Ceausescu to flee Bucharest, the call to the Condicator's personal pilot, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vasily Malutin, went out at 11.20 a.m. Generally, the Condicator's helicopter would land in the palace square, but Malutin radioed back, while hovering above, that there was no chance in hell he could land safely, if at all. Because it was just full of people. Thus, he was redirected to the roof, which had no helipad, it is just a roof. Flat and tarred like most commercial buildings, it's not reinforced or anything special, so Malatin was pretty wary about settling down on top. Around 11.44, one of Ceausescu's bodyguards leaned out of a window from an office near the elevator 
and he flagged Mallaton down by waving a white curtain over the sill. To the protesters below, this appeared to be symbolic of, if not misinterpreted as, the surrender of Nikolai Ceausescu. Mallaton eased his white Dauphin helicopter down onto the roof, the same kind of helicopter that European Coast Guards all use, so it's small but it's sturdy, and he waited just, just barely kissing the roof, really maintaining a hover but uh, just settling it down just enough that he can turn the rotor down so people can actually run under there without, you know, while still being able to breathe, and he waited for his passengers to arrive. He later recalled, then Stalika, the, the co-pilot, came to me and said that there were demonstrators coming to the terrace. Then the Ceausescu's came out, both practically carried by their bodyguards. They looked as if they were fainting. They were white with terror. Mania Minescu, uh, one, of, one of the vice presidents and, and a former five-year prime minister under Ceausescu, and Emil Bobu, uh, the former interior minister and labor minister, both, both Bobu and Minescu were friends with Nikolai. They were two of the five who helped him run the country. Uh, we're running behind them. Menescu Bobu Nyugo, uh, that's Mayor Nyugo, uh, Nikolai's assistant since 1954, later made Major General because reasons. Oh, here's my fucking secretary. You doing a good work, kid? Ah, how would you like to be in charge of an army? <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> he was the Major General from 1984 to this very day, uh, and was also director of the security. You're my secretary, you're doing a pretty good job. Uh, do you want to run the secret police? I think you earned it. <laughs> Here's your bonus. Here's your Christmas bonus. <laughs> and another security officer scrambled to the four seats in the back. As I pulled Ceausescu in, I saw the demonstrators running across the terrace, the rooftop. There wasn't enough space. Elena Ceausescu and I were squeezed in between the chairs and the door. We were only supposed to carry four passengers. We had six. Tiny helicopter overloaded with people. So if you didn't catch that, Malatin was saying that the protesters had broken through the rooftop access door and were barreling across the rooftop toward the helicopter, at which point Malatin's co-pilot, Anton Steleka, pulled off from the terrace and took the six fugitives into the sky. They didn't have time to get the other two people out of there. They just had to fucking go. So now they're just flying away, overweight. And there weren't just the six passengers and two pilots in the helicopter. No, there was also the mechanic, who Mallerton had uh, said had to be seated in the dictator's lap. <laughs> There's not enough room. I can't stand on this. There's no handlebars. Sit down on Nikolai Ceausescu's lap like you're asking him what you want for Christmas. I want to survive. That's what I want. Can you give it to me, Santa? No. <laughs> uh, it was 12.08 when the White Dolphin took off towards Snagov, 20 miles north of Bucharest, where the Ceausescu's had their summer home. They arrived shortly thereafter, and as Nikolai stormed into his lush abode, he dragged Malotan with him in into the main bedroom, and he commanded Malotan to call in for reinforcements, specifically for two military choppers filled with soldiers to be an armed guard and a second white dolphin to be used as a feint, a smokescreen, a quick distraction to take the heat off of the Ceausescu craft in case of anti-aircraft fire. So Malton called his commanding officer, only to hear back, <clears throat> uh, There's been a revolution. Uh, so you're on your own. 
good luck. Melotin returned to Nikolai with the grave news, but suggested that they could still escape readily with just the one dolphin, only if they were going to maximize their chance of success, they couldn't overload the chopper the way they had when they left Bucharest. Ergo, they could only take four passengers. Nikolai went to his friends, Manny Amaneski, the former Prime Minister, and Emil Bobu, the former Interior and, La and Labor Minister, and he informed them that uh, there was a second helicopter on its way to Snagov, here, and they just ought to sit tight and wait for it to arrive. Of course, this was bullshit, <laughs> but Manescu and Bobu, loyal to a fault, thanked Nikolai and returned to the living room. They would both soon realize that no helicopter was on its way, and about 20 minutes after the Ceausescu's left, they flagged down a troop jeep, a military 4x4, and ordered the guy to drive them to an airfield west of Bucharest. However, as they reached the town of Geisty, an angry mob stopped the vehicle and pulled the three men, Menescu, Bobu, and the driver, from the jeep and took them into custody. On Bobu's person, they found 6,000 lei, equivalent to uh, the annual salaries of three average Armenians, as well as a list of those likely behind the uprisings at Timisora. Basically like, oh, this guy's ready to one, flee the country, and two, come back with a vengeance. Let's treat him fairly, shall we? <laughs> yeah. In February 1990, the Bucharest Military Tribunal found Menescu, Bobu, and two others guilty of orchestrating genocide, and they were each sentenced to life in prison. Three years later, however, after an appeal, the Supreme Court downgraded their sentences to aggravated manslaughter, which shortened life to ten years, though Bobu would only serve five. Menescu had already been released in 1992 for poor health, though he lived until 2009 when he died at the age of 92. Bobu's fate was a little more satisfying, however, as he lived until the age of 87, dying in a Bucharest hospital in 2014 from a brain ischemia, aka his blood flow to the brain slowed down so much so that it starved his brain of oxygen, known as cerebral hypoxia, and this led to what's called a cerebral infarction, aka necrosis of the brain tissue, aka the slow death of the brain, which begins with a headache, ooh, ah, and neck stiffness, followed by a weakness on one side of the body, and then vomiting, and possibly a stroke, but definitely seizures, and decreasing levels of consciousness until you die. Yay for Bobu. You know, it's a horrible way to go out, but I, th I think he earned it, you know? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Ceausescu ordered Malotan to head for Titu, a town west of Snagov, near Tukaesti. Now, Malotan could sense that this shit was not going to end. He'd be puddle-jumping Ceausescu all the way to Atlantis if it, he didn't get himself separated from the Condicator. So he started to raise and dip the helicopter in a vertical serpentine until Ceausescu turned to ask, what are these evasive maneuvers for? Malotin told him that they were in range of an anti-aircraft battlement, and since Romanian officials had just ordered their airspace closed, oh, and the Condicator's Dolphin was passing between three rural runways, two military bases, and Bucharest International Airport? Whew, Malotin was counting on somebody just taking pot shots at their helicopter. Oh no. So he'd like to be less of a target. Ergo, the vertical serpentine. <laughs> well, at that, 
Ceausescu started freaking out. And he started just banging on the back of Melatonin's seat, ordering him to land before they got shot out of the sky. Who? Melatonin just incepted Ceausescu's brain, and he didn't have to get a special little briefcase and press a button and go into his dreams. Yeah? Pretty baller ass. Likely concealing a smirk, Melatonin huh, obliged. If that's what you want. They brought the helicopter down on a barren stretch of road. A rural road that, centuries ago, was the main route from Bucharest to Potesti, another major city. It's an old road. Fitting place to bring things to an end. Malatin apologized to his passengers and said, Well, if we're not taking the helicopter, there's nothing more I can do for you. And he, his co-pilot, and his mechanic pulled out their crossword puzzles and newspapers or whatever, and they, they just sat there. Well, Nikolai Elena and the assistant uh, Mayor Nigo and the lone security officer uh, just hopped out and ran over to the roadside. And for a couple minutes, they tried flagging down cars. <laughs> Hey, it's me, I'm Stop, stop, no, oh. I don't think they realized it was me. Maybe what I did. Oh. Are these people even looking? Are they driving with their eyes closed? I don't understand. Most of the cars ignored him. One car did stop. It was driven by a forestry official, but when he realized who his prospective passenger, uh, whose prospective passengers would be, he slammed on the gas and sped off. <laughs> All these people need help. Their helicopter seems to have gone down. I'll just pull over. Oh, hold on. Oh, fuck. I'm not getting into this. Oh, I kind of looked like he was stopping. Should I, should I have rolled my pan leg up and flashed my ankles? <laughs> the next time that they flagged down a car, a, a small red tin can of a vehicle, the security officer put his pistol in the face of the driver, a local doctor named Nikolai Deka, and he ordered him to let the Ceausescu's into the back seat. The doctor had no other choice, so he obliged. Uh, Deka drove north toward the city of Targovist, and nearing the outskirts, the doctor started to panic. The protesters there would surely seize him as an accomplice if they got control of the vehicle. So the doctor, thinking on his feet, started fluttering the gas pedal. And he feigned engine trouble on the car. The car is not responding well. Being the shitbox car that it was, and this was rather believable, because even Ceausescu was like, we make shitty cars, I fucking know. And the, so the doctor pulled over in the small farming village of Vacaresti, just south of Targovist, and he popped the hood and said, like, Oh, shoot! Oh, yeah, see that? It, it's, it, it's that, like this. You see that, right? Oh, no, no good. The car's busted, man. I will be here all afternoon trying to fix that. Fuck, that, that sucks. Oh, but you, you guys, yeah, no, just, you know, if you just walk north, you'll get to Targovist. Soon enough, it's just up the road. I'm so sorry I can't help you guys. Cars, you know? So the Ceausescu's... Cars. Ceausescu's <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I, 
I, I know everything, so obviously I, I see exactly what's broken. I understand. I understand it more than you, actually. I understand exactly what's broken, and I understand that it's going to take actually quite longer and uh, more work than you said, because I understand cars more than uh, everybody. So, yeah, no, I, uh, I you're right. Uh, I'll just walk over to Tuggeries. You, you did a good service. You did a good service. You're a good Romanian. You're a good man. If I had a lemon, I would give it to you, but I don't. So the Ceausescu's, they took to the road bundled in their heavy jackets, and they marched north, eventually flagging down another car, that of a bicycle repairman named Nikolai Petrisor. As for the doctor, Nikolai Deka, there, there are lots of Nikolais in this scene. This is one scene, there's a lot of Nikolais. Uh, as soon as the Ceausescu's were out of sight, uh, the doctor, Nikolai Deka, he ran to a local house and he phoned the police. Boop, 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 boop telling them that the Ceausescu's were between Vacoresti and Targovist. With the Ceausescu's in his back seat, the bicycle repairman, Nikolai Petrosor, turned on the radio to see what the hell was going on. He was a bit out of the loop. You know what they say, bicycle repairmen live busy lives. He, he didn't know what was going on. Why is the guy who runs the country, like, flagging me down for a fucking ride? That's weird. Uh, the radio was reporting, with voices unfamiliar, uh, that the state capital and its media network had been seized by the revolutionaries, and that the Ceausescu's were fugitives on the run. I can imagine the sudden flush of Petrosor's blood from his face as he looked into the rearview mirror, with, with just his eyes, his face dead set toward the road, but just his eyes flick up to the mirror, and his body stiff as a board, as if he isn't hearing anything of interest. Oh, nope, just driving. Now listen to the radio outside, just use it for white noise. And he just glances back at the Ceausescu's, with just as much fear for his life as the Ceausescu's were likely fearing and mirroring back at him, if not just like staring out the window, like white-knuckling the door, just looking for people who might notice them in the back. And Nikolai Ceausescu then just starts trying to downplay everything that's coming through the radio, as he and this is true, he starts telling the bicycle repairman that, oh, there's no revolution. It's just a coup d'etat. And they've been run out, of the, run out of the city while the enemies of the state attempt to uh, denigrate and destroy his good name. But, and he tells the repairman that, oh, you will be greatly rewarded for helping to bring the country's leader to safety. Yeah, you're doing a great job. We'll, we'll fucking, we'll get you a shitload of money. You know, you're helping us out a lot. You know, when the whole coup blows over, you know. I got guys. They're fixing it. They're fixing it. Don't worry. Can you just uh, change the station to sports so that way we can stop uh, yeah. me hearing this story? You know, you got, the, you got the green and yellows game going on. Yellow and greens. You got the old county. They're playing today, I think. I think they're playing today. They're probably going to win by 18 points. They won by 18 points the last couple games. 18-0. Last couple games. Uh... And of course, Petrosaur, he's just nodding his head, likely dry-swallowing like crazy. His mouth must feel like he's shoved, shoved it full of raw cotton before saying, Oh yeah, of course, you know, anything for the Condicator, right? <laughs> and this reminds me so much of that car breakdown scene. Uh, the, 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 in the moment halfway through David Fincher's uh, Zodiac film. You ever see Zodiac? No. Brilliant film. I've seen it like 20 times. Uh, there's a scene where... Uh, a mom and her baby get into the passenger seat of a guy. Uh, he'd flagged her down for a loose wheel, but he'd actually flashed her down and nothing was wrong with the car. And when he said, oh, I'll, I'll fix it for you, he actually loosened it. So then when they get driving again, 
the wheel pops off. And then he had driven past, but then he reverses it and he goes, oh, it must be worse than that. Let me just take you up to the, st I know there's a mechanic station like up the road. Let me just take you to it. And she's like, okay. She goes back to her car, grabs the baby, brings it out with her. And then he's like, oh, I didn't know you had a kid because he just wants to stab the woman. Like, that's his thrill. But now there's his fucking kid and that's never been a part of this game. So he's now a little hesitant. And the woman starting to realize shit's creepy, but now uh, is the kid gonna be a problem? And then, you know, they pass a mechanic station, and she's like, there was one back there. And he's like, they weren't open. She's like, the lights were on. And he's like, he, he alludes to something where she wouldn't have to worry about things anymore. So then, she just fucking opens the door, and dives out of the car. They don't show that, but they... Uh, they David Finch is a really good director. He, he I won't ruin any more of the thing. Uh, but basically, uh, as they're driving and talking, she realizes that he is going to kill her. So she leaps from the car. Of course, there's loads of movies with scenes like this, uh, where someone realizes that the person they're in the room with is not who they say they are. Yes. And then the tension brews as they try to play it off and talk themselves into safety. But uh, Zodiac does it seriously well, and I do intend on writing a script of this particular, like, this episode, essentially of the podcast, everything I'm telling you right now, I feel like could break down really smoothly into a dark comedy. And uh, this scene would... I'd keep it humorous, but uh, have, like, that serious degree of tension for Petrosaur. I think so. Um, it would flow pretty well. So Petrosaur tells the Ceausescu's, Hey, I just realized, you know what would be safer than going into Targo Vist? What if I took you to the workplace of a friend of mine? It's this agricultural college, and it's not open today because of the holiday, Christmas. But I have a key. Mm-hmm, I have a key, and you two could hide out there, safe from the searching eyes of your enemies. While, while your colleagues back in Bucharest, they get the things straightened out with the traitors, you know, the, the agents of the enemy. Yeah, it'll be safe at the agricultural college. What do you guys say? Nikolai Ceausescu... He is relieved. He sighs and he, he pats Petrosaur on the shoulder saying, Yes, yes, that's a great idea. You're doing a great service for your country. So Petrosaur pulls down the dirt road to the agricultural college, welcomes the Ceausescu's inside, shows them to an office, and he says he'll be back shortly with food and provisions. And then he leaves and he locks the door behind him and he gets in his car and he, he drives straight for the army barracks outside Targo Vist. There, he tells the local commander that he has the Ceausescu's locked up. They're under lock and key. They don't know a damn thing. So if you want to be sneaky, you can be sneaky. If you want to be loud, you can be loud. I don't fucking care. But I know you want them. And they're right over here. So the uh, Petrosaur leads the garrison goons back to the agricultural college where he opens the door to an expectant pair of Ceausescu's, except without an arm full of food and blankets and provisions. Behind Petrosaur instead stands a ragtag group of central Romanian soldiers with vengeance in their eyes and violence in their smiles. At around 3.30 that day, Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu were tied up and driven back to the barracks outside Targovist. 
and it is in that barracks where we will spend our next episode of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. We're breaking this section into two, of course. The section's very long, which is antithetical to the name of the show, long story short, but I'm taking a very, very long story. I'm making it very, very short. It's just that this part, I can't really, I can't really apply that. I'm, I'm telling it in real time. Well, not real time, but I'm breaking it down. I'm breaking it down. So the next episode will be High Stakes at Targo Vist Part 2. As for now, this is Chris, and this has been Jake. Jake, have you have you enjoyed my uh, my yelling at you about various things? It's been pretty enlightening. Uh, I don't know much about European history at all, so I did one of those uh, like European map quizzes, and I did awful. Oh, like on the flash game? Yes. So, oh, yeah, I did remember. terrible. I think I got like fifty-two percent or something like that. Oof. But I got kind of screwed because there's, like, a lot of, like, very small, like, city-country sort of deals. Yeah, like San Marino. Yeah. That they count against you because you don't know it's, like, a speck on the map. Like, I'm like, oh, this must be a country. And they're like, huh, just kidding. So, yeah. I'm lucky I know, like, the 50 states. (laughs) Uh, I hope y'all enjoyed listening to our ramblings and our shamblings and our shamblings now this is chris it's me jake (laughs) well with a long story short signing off bye-bye boom two plus two is four minus one that's three quick maths everyday man's on the block smoke trees see your girl shameless plug uh pick up circle game uh short story collection by Christopher Bartle. It's on Amazon. It's only like $18. I bought a hardcover and it, it looks snazzy and I, I flipped through it and read a couple chapters because I was like, shit, yeah, shit, yeah, look at my book. I made a book. I'm smelling my book. You ever like write a book, then self-publish it, and then mail it to yourself so you can just smell a cover and be like, this came out of my fingers. No, but it sounds like a pretty epic feeling. It, it's very rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding feelings I've felt, and I've only had it six times, so. The best one, though, was uh, kind of similar. I had a baby, so that w- was different. Like, yeah, know, I didn't really, like, get delivered to you. It didn't come out of my ten fingers, but it came out of my eleventh finger. True. And then my wife self-published it with her wombie and her vagine. And then she popped it out, and I picked it up when it was delivered to me, and I smelled it, and it smelled like my little project that I just put so much love and care into. You know, she's the bestest. Yay! Yay! Wanna see him? I'm gonna oh, spin his jaw. An awesome experience. Unfortunately, he did die. He had a physical ailment that came. I think it was a, a heart. Uh, he had like a weak heart. I feel like I have a weak heart too. I have 
apparently very high cholesterol, and my doctor's putting me on Lipitor because she's given up on my ability to handle my cholesterol on my own. <laughs> Just so, gotta eat more Cheerios. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> you're gonna love this. Um, I, uh, <laughs> Leah kept saying, you can't buy the cereal you want to eat anymore. No more Fruity Pebbles. You have to get Cheerios. So I got the healthiest, most boring looking box of Cheerios, and I was like, I'll just eat them, because I have to have breakfast, and it says it helps lower cholesterol, so whatever. I get the asterisks, I read them all the same and whatnot, but looking on the side of the box, it made sense. It, it was fine. We also got a Halloween box of, like, the Reese's Puffs baddies, and my wife let us get that because it was like, they made Reese's Puffs in the shape of baddies. Like, that's pretty cool. I won't, I won't criticize you if, if you just put that in the cart and I don't notice. And I was like, hey, hey, hey. One day I take them out, look at the nutrition side by side. Cholesterol, sugars, fats, Reese's Puffs be, like, were healthier. <laughs> Reese's Puffs were fucking healthier than what's supposedly, like, the shitty cardboard Cheerios that help lower cholesterol. It blew my fucking mind. I showed Leah and she was like, Oh my god. I don't know. I guess everything I know is out the window. I don't know what to say. I guess go ahead and eat the Reese's Puffs. And you know what I don't buy anymore? That fucking lying ass box of Cheerios. <laughs> Fuck Cheerios. Conning me into buying them because they're like, What's your heart? I'm actually kind of surprised, but at the same rate, I almost don't feel it because it's like the biggest advertisement they always put on that box. Right. It's like lowers cholesterol. Asterisk, asterisk. So the fact that it like doesn't seem like it because of the nutritional facts like doesn't surprise me as much. It's like when products are marketed like four to five doctors say that this will like help your joints or four out of five dentists recommend this tooth toothpaste you know they didn't ask four out of five they asked five doctors and four said yes they asked a shitload of doctors and then they cherry picked which ones it would be because if they said five out of five doctors you wouldn't believe it you'd say they're making that shit up if they put three out of five doctors you'd be like that's essentially 50 50 that's garbage i don't want that but four out of five is basically like hey Basically, all these doctors said yes, but there was one dissenting vote, so at least we know it was an impartial vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably why they say helps lower cholesterol versus, like, guarantees yeah. lower cholesterol. They find. Like, it's probably, like, in combination with a healthy diet right, plus yeah. exercise plus whatever. Your you're asterisk, asterisk, asterisk on that, yeah. Four out of five doctors approved. How about if something is in advertising, it's just bullshitting you into buying their product? Why do you make a commercial for perfume? You can't smell a TV. Do I need to see yeah. Jared Leto france about with like his little monkey dick and his, his weird fucking stupid cult hair? Because he actually has a cult. He has a stupid fucking... It's a stupid cult, Jared Leto's stupid fucking ugly-ass, weird, dead-eyed fucking baby dick cult with thin f like feminine waist and the weird like he has like 10 extra ribs but no abs fuck Jared Leto what was I talking about just, just I, was, I was gonna say we're, we're kind of uh, three topics away from where we were what were the other topics oh god um, so below they escaped the helicopter guys yes. blocked the door 
oh. in their final moments. Two, three, four. Reese's Puffs, Reese's Puffs. Eat them up, beat them up, beat them up, beat them up. Reese's Puffs, Reese's Puffs. Eat them up, beat them up, beat them up, beat them up. Wow. I got Reese's Puffs in my bowl. Wow. Nowadays on cruise control. Wow. I wake up to my Reese's Puffs inspired this rhyme. The peanut butter chocolate combination is 